And welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. And I'm Patrick Rapole. And with us today, ooh, what a special guest. Mr. Daniel Baldwin. I love special guests. Remember that one time we had an ordinary guest? That went horribly. (laughs) No more, we said. Special guests only. And today, ooh, what a special guest. Daniel Baldwin. You know him, of course, as a writer for Cinematallica.com. That is spelt with... Uh, the Metallica part with an A instead of an E. Uh, so you do have to, you have to, you have to do cinema and then put Metallica at the end instead of sin and then put Metallica. But any, either way, he's a great writer. Um, he's a friend of mine. I know from back in my Chud days. Uh, Daniel Baldwin, how are you? Hey, pretty good. How are you guys? Stoked. Excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So does that mean you ha- you're obligated to review th- the uh, new Metallica movie through the network? Oh, I want to see that so bad, Jim. Jim, can you can you? I I know you're in Grand Rapids now. Can you take a bus or a train or a helicopter down to Chicago? Can we go see it on the biggest 3D screen we can? I need more reasons to come back to Chicago just to go just to go Trader Joe's shopping. I want to see. I I am not. I am not kidding. I want to see through the never so bad, <laughs> and I really can't. I have no money, and I can't justify myself like to myself that like because I mean you folks, if you listen to podcasts, you know I see like seven movies in this in the theater a year. Like I I'm just really bad about that, especially when I don't have any money. That's and why I'm always I excited to hear your top ten at the end of the year. Like, oh, yeah. Those are the ten movies Patrick saw this year. Right. My top ten. My top ten always ends up being like, here are the top ten movies I saw in the past two weeks that I like just did in a mad scramble so we could do a top ten episode. Um, but uh, I really want to see through the never. I actually, good. I actually saw it Monday. <gasps> How was it? <laughs> is that? I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that is that what we're going to be talking about for the what we watched this week? <laughs> We can, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll touch. Okay, let's let's touch on it briefly. Um, but oh man, that's I like Metallica. There's a there's a bar near my house called Lockdown, and it uh, it's a metal bar. Sort of, it's like it's only only hipsters eat there, and there's just people there like have conversations. There's no like stage for metal bands to play, and no one's ever like moshing or dancing or anything. But the music is always this insane death metal, and they're always playing like. <laughs> concert films on DVD, like these crazy metal concert films on DVD. Sometimes after work, I like to drop by there and uh, just sort of have my head pounded in by Pantera. None of this has anything to do with the director of the episode. Oh, we're directors, um, though. That's right. I'm excited yeah. to talk about this director. He's kind of renowned Can we, horror genre. Do you, do you want to just drop Do you want to just drop the pot? Do you want to just catch up, Jim, me and you? <laughs> and, and Daniel, of course. I can try, we can find out what Daniel's been up to. No. No, we must carry on. We have to carry on for the sake of Wes Craven, who is the subject of this of today's episode. Yeah, I grew up um, a huge fan um, since Nightmare on Elm Street was the first movie to truly fuck me up. Besides Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, that is. Uh, and uh, but as time has gone on, I feel he's made more goofy, messy movies rather than truly great ones. So, should be an interesting conversation. Uh, he's definitely. I I love Wes Craven as a person. <laughs> Every time you see he he Wes Craven is like that English teacher 
who will yes. just recommend a book to you, and then you'll like, oh my god, how do you know this is like the exact kind of I would love reading this. Like he's just so kind, and every time you ever see him in like interviews, he's very soft spoken and very intelligent and very thoughtful. And it's like, oh, and I was anyway, I was reading this newspaper article, and then I decided to make Hills Have Eyes, and it's like, what the hell? Like who are you? <laughs> It's the same guy who was editing porno throughout the seventies, like just and directed one. <laughs> there you go, like just oh yeah no anyway it was, it was just really fascinating and I don't know there's I like Wes Craven a lot his films not so much and going back looking watching another film I was actually surprised that I used to I used to find myself in the camp where I was just like um you know they're they're dumb but they're kind of fun and honestly I don't even find a lot of them that fun now so that'll be interesting oh. to talk about. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get there when we get there. Um, Daniel, if I'm not mistaken, you did you watch all of Wes Craven's movies in preparation for this? Almost. Um, got down to crunch time and just with other stuff, both for uh, Cinematalic and in, in real life, I had to skip a few. Uh, the only ones I didn't watch, I didn't revisit Last House on the Left um, or Hills Have Eyes Part 2. Sad, I know, but, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I haven't gotten to see uh, Music of the Heart yet. But everything else he did that was feature length, I watched it. Even the porno. <laughs> Whoa, he did a porno? Yeah. 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 Hmm. Angela the Fireworks Lady, which sounds like the movie of, like, sounds like the name of, like, a silent Renoir film. <laughs> but <laughs> I think I'm thinking of the Matchstick Girl. Anyway, do we have any announcements to make, Jim? Well, I was on the Cinecast um, fairly recently. I don't have the episode number in front of me, but it's it was last week's episode, and I got to review Rush, Short Term 12, and Don John, which I just basically did a marathon in the movie theater and saw all three in one day. Uh, and uh, it was a great time. And obviously they do a What We Watch segment, so I touched on uh, uh, a very personal film that I brought up on the show as being one of the movies that got me into movies, and that was Pump Up the Volume since I rewatched that. And kind of one of my main goals is to have a conversation with the director. Because uh, I don't know what he's up to, but I'm sure it's not a whole lot right now. <laughs> but I'm he's, raking, he's raking in that uh, Empire Records money. So, yeah, that, that was cool, and I know the movie club is going to be recording next week. So we're kind of... We're, we're making the rounds now that we're back, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to be recording another podcast today about horror movies. Um, you. And if all goes well, I'll be recording – I'll be on a separate, different podcast talking about horror films uh, towards the end of the month. So Nice. Yeah, making the rounds, as you said. Um, I believe someone brought it to our attention that some of our – some of the MP, like direct downloads on our site of the older episodes – um, our, the links are broken, so we're looking into that. Yes. Um, we just want to let everyone know we're looking into that. Of course, you can always download us at iTunes. Uh, and you should rate and subscribe to us and leave a review for us on iTunes as well. Anyway, uh, we can do all that shit at the end. Um, hey, Jim, how about we get into what we watched this week? Why don't we? Because that's what we do. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. <laughs> Daniel, you go first because we love it when the guest goes first. 
Alrighty. Well, we're running a series of uh, John Carpenter articles this month, so I've been, I mean, ev- all the writers are involved in it, but I've been kind of uh, juggling John Carpenter and Wes Craven movies all past two weeks. But if I want to talk about anything real fun, on Monday I saw Metallica Through the Never, and yes. Thursday <laughs> night I went... Thursday night I went and saw Machete Kills. So. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, what has a dumber plot? Machete Kills or the weird fictional, like, riot parts of Through the Never? Machete Kills wins, actually. Okay. Mm. Can I ask you real quick about... I'm not excited about Robert Rodriguez movies at all anymore. Yeah, can I... But can I... Before we get to Machete Kills, can I, can I real quick, like, that weird, like, the song remains the same thing that they're doing with the new Metallica concert uh-huh. film. How how much of the film is that? Where it's just like a what is it like a roadie like running to get something for Metallica? Yeah, he uh, Dane DeHane or however you pronounce his name. Um, he actually has no lines in the movie whatsoever. <laughs> okay, sweet. Uh, basically, he sent out. He's told that he has to go out and find this truck that broke down that has something special in it that the band needs for the concert. They give him a <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the head of the roadies or whatever it is. He's the evil Kryptonian scientist from Man of Steel, by the way. Um, <laughs> gives him a map head of the roadies. <laughs> <laughs> gives him a map and a huge jug of gasoline, and and Dane hops in his beat up van and hauls off down through the city. And he pops a pill at one point, so I guess that's the real half-assed explanation for the crazy shit that shows up later on. But he basically drives right into what could best be described as like a mixture of Escape from New York and Bane's fucked up Gotham City from The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> Com- complete with the Bane-esque villain riding on horseback with a giant sledgehammer that chases him throughout the entire thing. This is a concert film. Oh, this is so good. And is it, oh, is it just like, oh, is it, is it like, uh, like Brutal Legend or something where it's just like a ton of references to all of the songs? Like, does he run into like someone and they go, motor breath or something like that? Like, does he run into the four horsemen or? No, he doesn't. I was surprised by that, actually. It's, it basically plays, like, you know how sometimes especially with rock or metal bands, they have videos where it cuts between the band playing along and then it'll go to whatever crazy-ass footage they have paired with it. Yeah. Just imagine a feature-length version of that. I'd say about at least two-thirds of it is just concert footage, but it's intercutting, you know, off and on throughout. That's so funny. And it's in 3D, and it's, oh, that's so good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's too. It's too bad that it isn't just. I guess it would. It have to be more. That'd be more Megadeth's thing. Metallica is more tasteful. I feel. Uh, Megadeth is the one where Dave Mustaine would just be talking in weird voices and skull and like skeleton politicians would be like, down with the system and." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's the that's the funny thing, by the way. He he finally finds the truck, and within it is. He just opens up this huge moving truck, and there's this leather duffel bag just sitting in the center of it. Of course. And he, well, and of course, he opens it and sees what's in it, but we never do. Well, it's, it's, I think, <laughs> I, I think it's Marcellus Wallace's soul, right? 
I just assume it was Dave Mustaine's head, but... <laughs> <laughs> or so or Kirk Hammett's comic book collection, I mean, whichever you want to go with. Yeah, that's even better. better. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I'm sorry. I just... That, that, I, that trailer... Uh, for through the never just tickled me pink in all the right way. Like it made me, it made me feel like I was 15 again. I was so happy. I was like just legitimately really happy. Some kind oh. of monster made me feel like I was my like 35 when I saw yeah. <laughs> some, some kind of monster. Uh, well, the thing is, uh, some kind of monster is what it was like a very touchstone kind of movie. Not necessarily because it like influenced me as a cinephile at all, but it was a movie that I really had a really great day with hanging out with my two friends. And we all liked metal music, and we all saw, uh, we all saw some kind of monster. But we all like, at this time, we all maintained that Megadeth is way better than Metallica. So like, when Dave Mustaine came on, we were all cheering and stuff. It was great. And then he started crying. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, which made it even better. Yeah, I started crying when James Hetfield started singing the lyrics for Saint Anger. <laughs> I like that album. I like, I like it that too. Album a lot. It's just yeah, lyrically. Meh. I mean, Metallica's not known for great lyrics, but I love their early shit. No. Yeah. It's it's weird that Metallica wrote... <laughs> um, yeah. It's like, oh yeah, Metallica, they also wrote uh, In My Life. Like, no. They're, they're the ones they write. The ones they, they write Seek and Destroy. There's actually not a single song from St. Anger in the film. Oh, no! And there's only one from Death Magnetic. So it's really... Wow. It's primarily just stuff from uh, Ride Through the Black Album. Not much from Kill 'Em All either. Um, just one. Which one? Wait, wait, wait. Let me guess. One. Uh, oh, it's 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 Seek and Destroy. Nope. Hit the lights. No. Hit, Hit the, the lights. lights. Wow. Yeah. What? I mean, personally, I want them to do No Remorse, but Seek and Destroy is like one of their classics, right? Yeah. I was surprised it wasn't on there. They actually... The, well, the thing I like the most about it, music-wise, is over the end credits, it's just the four of them playing Orion in its entirety. Ooh, that, nice. was pretty, that was pretty cool. But uh, the best thing I can... Well, other than the fact that I enjoyed them both for various reasons, the best thing I can say about the Metallica movie and Machete Kills is just watch the trailer, and you already know if you want to see it or not. I mean... That's the kind of movie that both of them are. You either you're either on board or you're not at all. <laughs> yeah, Machete Kills doesn't interest me. I, Rodriguez is just making movies for himself at this point. Like, yep. you know, and it's that's not the and you know that's not really the problem. Like, if he was making movies for himself and he was insane, that <laughs> would be interesting. But he's making movies for himself and he's just whoa, I can do, but yeah. do like it's like Machete Kills just feels like a weird adult swim show to me and it's just <laughs> like <laughs> kind of more than kind of yeah but he's not a particularly funny person so he can't I don't know like his movies aren't that funny no oh, yes Machete Kills plays out like a direct video sequel to the first one that somehow got a theatrical release hmm. and the, the adult swim thing is pretty apt except the main difference being instead of cartoon characters fashioned after celebrities, the celebrities actually show up. <laughs> yeah. Or nowadays, the Adult Swim, it would be all just alt 
L.A. alt-comedy celebrities. So it's like, oh, my God, it's Nick Offerman. It's like, well, yeah, it's, of course, Nick Offerman's in every goddamn show now. Like, <laughs> you're not going to get away from Paul Shear. Of course he's there. Um, yeah, I don't, like, there's not really, there's something really bland about Robert Rodriguez's brand of, of like, cr- of crazy film. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, uh, I'm trying to think of a, it's not Crank. Like, he doesn't make, it. they don't feel as aggressive uh, as something like Crank. Mm. Um, they play more like fan films with a budget. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a really, really... That's pretty yeah. much what they are. Yeah, I, with, I mean, there are a few that rise above that, but lately that's that's the way they've played for me. It just feels like nothing but winking the whole time. Pretty much. At which, at which point, just make a comedy. Like... <laughs> like, like in a vacuum is is just people firing machine guns and explosions really exciting. Like if there's if it's so weightless that just every crazy action thing where it's like oh and the motorcycle flips over and they end up in space and they shoot down at the Hubble telescope or whatever. Like if if everything has no weight to it whatsoever. Like, is could any of it possibly still be exciting? Like, is there any point in even making it an action movie? Like, like that? No. Mm. I, I mean, the the two best things about the movie are uh, Demian Bashir and Mel Gibson because they both actually put effort into their performances. But other than that, it's just it's fluff. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. That's 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 a really that's. This is sort of where we ended up, right? So, like, yeah. Grindhouse... Grindhouse was its own weird thing. Mm-hmm. And I would say Planet Terror isn't really that much like Machete. Like, Planet Terror is kind of aggressive and kind of right. mean-spirited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's still, it's still weightless, and it's still dumb, and oh, the woman loses her leg, and she gets a sweet-ass machine gun, and, like, it's it's all this bullshit in it. But, it's, but it also was really gross, and it just has the kid shooting himself in the face, and it's... <laughs> And and also it was part of Grindhouse, which is this weird singular sort of event that happened in yeah. 2007 that was just like really odd. I remember seeing that in theaters and just like I remember people literally not understanding the concept and people leaving after Planet Terror thinking the the film ended. <laughs> like, yeah. um, one of the times I saw it, one of the theater managers actually was standing at the back of the theater when the first one stopped and just kind of like, no, no, get back in your seat. You paid for. You paid for one movie, but you're getting two. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, that. But then it, it, that started the whole drive angry and all of those kinds of movies where it was just like, look, you're fucking crazy. We have fucking Satan demons flying out his ass, and they all have machine guns, and they're played by Nicolas Cage. It's like, oh, <laughs> gives a fuck. Like, was that crazy? Uh, was it shoot 'em up with Paul Giamatti and Clive Owen? Like that was that felt, like a product of Rodriguez's style meets Crank. Yeah, that's yeah. That felt more like Crank to me. That that is weightless too. Shoot 'em up is weird. Like shoot 'em up feels more like Looney Tunes yeah. than Adult <laughs> Swim. Like I mean, I mean, and it's pointedly so. It opens with like Clive Owen like chewing on a carrot, and he has he's like that he's that wascally gunman who can do all those <laughs> weird things with gun. Like I I was thinking about shooting 'em up the other day actually because I was just like. They do a lot of weird things with guns in that movie. That is just a, that's, that's like if someone looked at gun the gun kata in, in like Equilibrium and was like, what if 
what if we just expanded this into, what if there was this universe where someone could just do anything with guns? Like, if that movie had the same character, but it had a different plot, it would show him, like, picking up his kids from school with guns, and it would show him doing his taxes with guns, and it would show him <laughs> grocery shopping with guns. Like, I don't know, there's something really interesting about Shoot 'em Up. It's not good. It's not Crank. Like, I think Crank is a legitimately really great, like, well-realized kind of singular thing. Um, I agree. And I think Crank 2 is horrific. <laughs> like I, love, Crank- I love Crank 2. <laughs> Crank Two is so it's too much for it. Crank Two is too much for me, and not in the way that Rodriguez is too much. Like it's not in the way that's like, oh, it's too stupid. Crank Two is too mean and too like I don't. I'm surprised there weren't riots after that fucking movie <laughs> came out. It is so it's just so nihilistic and so misogynistic and so just horrible and just like, oh, yeah. Crank Two is weird. Yeah, Crank One was like maybe drinking one Red Bull, and Crank Two was like drinking five. Mm-hmm. It was just like a little bit too much for me, and I, I I just wonder if Rodriguez should not write scripts at all anymore because probably not. I, but... I like From Dust Till Dawn and I like Sin City, and he didn't write either of those. You know what else? You know what other movie he didn't write? Hmm. The Faculty. Oh yeah, yeah. that movie's that movie's real good. It wouldn't it would not be a Directors Club if we didn't have a Stokely shout out. <laughs> I suppose not. <laughs> Though this time it was you that shouted her out. That's true. Oh, Clea Duvall. Um, uh, is it Duvall? Oh. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, the sad, the real sad thing about Machete Kills is the budget is so damn low that if it makes $8 million this weekend, it's going to be profitable, and he'll get to make that third one. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. And yes, yeah. there is a trailer for a Machete 3 at the end of the isn't movie. It, isn't it in space? Yes, Machete Kills again in space. I okay, so yeah. I'm trying. How do I feel about that? I guess I don't. I guess I don't. You know what I do like? I do like that it seems like it's mostly just Robert Rodriguez doing it at this point. Yeah, like yeah. a lot of those. A lot He's of those. Getting it all in his, you know, house and. Oh yeah, it is. It is even just considering his own crew. It is mostly him doing those movies. But I mean, it's also just we're not flooded with a lot of that stuff anymore, yeah. are we? At least not in theaters. Not I can't remember. I can't really recall a lot of movies that came out this year that are occupied the same space as Machete. So I guess if Robert Rodriguez wants to do that for the rest of his life, I guess it's... I don't know if it's preferable to his 3D kids movies, but... Um, Gravity. Has anyone heard of this? Gravity? Yeah. Uh, uh, illuminate me. It's a great song by John Mayer. Yes, yeah. certainly. Mm-hmm. But other than that... It is a uh, remarkable, remarkable technical accomplishment from a filmmaker you covered fairly recently, Patrick. Yeah, Alfonso Cuarón. Yeah, pretty cool guy. Real cool guy. Real cool movie. <laughs> yeah. Daniel, oh, so we're all on the same page. Daniel, did you see Gravity yet? No. <laughs> oh my god. I know. Yeah, I know. Yes, I'm the person that went to see Through the Never and Machete Kills before he saw Gravity. <laughs> I do want to see it. I will see it. It's just that I just haven't done it yet. I'm a terrible person. Yeah. I thought it was perfect. It's it was, not perfect. I, 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 I don't not, think it's I perfect. Know, I know, I know. Everybody's bringing up the script and the score and some of the holes in the logic, but I got so swept up in it. You know, yeah. I mean, it... Uh, no, absolutely. It realistically simulates the zero gravity conditions and what it must feel like to be in space, and for Patrick, that's probably really boring. 
No, 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 no. This film is not boring. Not the film itself, but space. That's one of the things, like, space and nature, not for Patrick. I find them as concepts boring. I find, like, ooh, what's in other galaxies? It doesn't matter. We're never getting there. I don't have any faith in the human race to ever get to other galaxies. So just (laughs) that conversation boring. What I like about gravity is that it's about how horrible space is, and it's about how horrifying it is. Yeah, it is. Um... It's, it's, this, this movie has like just this ebb and flow that feels really intoxicating while you're watching it, and uh, I got like, I mean, again, you know, having lines like "It's going to be a wild ride" when she's talking to herself. Yeah, you can roll your eyes, but I was emotionally invested into the film and her character, and I was able to look past the cliches. I didn't really feel disengaged. Uh, you know. It, I just feel like the things like, you know, the, the, the score, it, you know, I mean, it, it is overbearing, but I still think it sort of complements, you know, the, the mood of the film as it goes on, especially towards the end at the, the climax. And uh, I, I just can't get over the, this this filmmaker, like, you know, inventing cameras for to accomplish what he wants to accomplish and doing these incredibly long takes and making them seem so seamless and... Uh, there's just things as you're watching it go. How did the how the fuck did they pull that off? You know, so it's 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 going to be cited, I think, as a you know boundary pushing, game changing movie. Mm-hmm. My hope is that people take the right lessons from this because yes, there are a few cliches where they have to give her the backstory. Yeah, and and I mean this isn't this is this is a very simple movie. It's not a movie with a lot of twists. Um, it's a movie that's just about the experience, especially... Now, Jim, uh, in what way did you see this? Do you see this in 3D, 2D? IMAX 3D, baby. Real IMAX or like yeah. a multiplex IMAX? Uh, well, multiplex IMAX. So. Okay. It was good. Okay. It was hell no, that's fine. That's fine. I saw it in real, I saw it in real IMAX, but, you know, no, multiplex IMAX. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. It's, it was no, awesome. but, you know, it's... The 3D is actually not horrible. It's not. It's still like, I don't know. It's still ugly. <laughs> I still think all 3D is ugly. I was just hoping George Clooney was going to float into the to the audience and we could all hug him. That would have been cool. Like at the very beginning, I was just like, "Damn, this this 3D is pretty spectacular." You know, I mean, there's there's some things you know where you kind of go, "Oh, well, obviously the little fireballs are going to fly out at you." So that yeah, it didn't. It wasn't distracting. It, it it actually was one of the better 3D experiences I've ever had. No, no, for sure, for sure. And it's it's 3D that has an artistic purpose where it's not. It's about establishing the depth and about space, and it's about because space is a, a vacuum, so everything is defined by how close you are to other objects. So in that in mind, like yeah, 3D is very helpful. And um, and again, the way he establishes zero gravity not through showing characters who are in zero gravity, but by having a camera that's zero gravity. Like it's, it's all tech, it's all formal. And, but what I, but what I, anyway, what I was saying is like, there's not a lot of cliches really. Um, uh, it's, and it's just a really, you know, really well constructed experience and everything. And I hope that what Hollywood takes away from this is that like, you can have the most thrilling like emotional, uh, sci- like sci-fi special effects spectacular, and what you don't need is like a bullshit hero's journey 
you don't need oh you're the chosen one and oh here's the ultimate mm. you have to save you have to save the world from this giant machine that's drilling a blue laser into the center of the city like it's a character you don't study too that's what's so yeah cool. exactly exactly and it's but it's simple it's a simple yeah. character study and so many just blockbuster movies now are just garbage because they're just so full they're just like oh yeah packing it we got to do this and we got to set up a trilogy and we got to do it and so so these, there's this and then there's this mythos to it and then there's this powers to it and then the, they have an ancient past and oh yes and you see Benedict Cumberbatch he's actually Khan and oh and like oh god like you don't need all that you can yeah. tell of simple like you know you you don't need this incredibly convoluted um sort of messy thing you know you don't need to do the Damon Lindoff fucking tackle big ideas by have everyone talk about big ideas that don't really have anything to do with the movie. You can tackle big ideas by just telling a simple story that people feel and then, and then just adding little touches like Alphonse. Like there's a moment where Sandra Bullock is sort of is floating and she's framed by the, this window of a space capsule and it's like this womb imagery and it's sort of this moment (laughs) where she's reborn. And there's a couple moments like that where it's just very clear that Corona's sort of, you know, he's he's just throwing in these themes without having people to fucking talk about their themes. Yeah, um, yeah. which is it's, it's a gimmick-free blockbuster that's also kind of cerebral without calling attention. Well, I mean, that kind of imagery, you know, it's definitely obvious, you know. In ter- but thematically, it's you know, he didn't just you know throw something in there just to throw it in there. It, but the, the thing about obvious is people don't mind obvious if. The plot, like, if they care about the movie. Yeah, yeah. Would people, like, I mean, again, like, the ultimate example of a blockbuster that's just full of bullshit and it just collapses under its own weight is Prometheus. And, like, all of these characters talking about, oh, my maker, we need to find it, blah, 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 like, like, religion, faith, and, but, like, just shit, like, spouting all this bullshit, like, all of that, people wouldn't mind if, if if they if if I mean that's an obvious movie, but it's also a tedious movie, and it's not tedious to see this like just beautiful, simple image. I mean, yeah. you know, it's not like it's not like Children of Men satire. Not even it's not even satire. It's an allegory, but it's not like Children of Men's metaphors are particularly <laughs> like hidden. Right. Like mm, I wonder what all of these you know propaganda on the bus about refugees. I wonder if that's anything about the war on it terror. Probably text of the story. And, yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, and it's a simple and children's simple. It's a simple tale of a of a single person having a full arc. Right. And you know, you look go go back to like the seventies, like what passed for blockbuster entertainment, not art films, just blockbuster entertainment. Then was something like Taking of the Pell and One Two Three, where it's just like a simple premise. And it, well, what what keeps the people there? Well, it's tense, and there are really great characters. Mm-hmm. So, like, I hope that is the message that Hollywood takes away: is that we need to back off from the Star Wars bullshit of creating these complicated un- worlds and universes and galaxies and yeah, and talking. I, just, I hope, like, you know, after The Matrix came out, there were all these knockoffs and, like, the 13th floor, is this reality <laughs> kind of movies? And I just hope they don't wind up doing that with gravity. I, if, I think what's going to end up happening is the Hollywood's going to go, hey, look, 3D movies are back. And also they're going to go, hey, look, space is sweet. We need to do a sweet space movie. Oh, Christopher Nolan's doing Interstellar or whatever? Sweet. Here's a sweet space movie. And it's – I don't think it's going to be 
I don't think people are going to really take away what makes this movie remarkable. Probably. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, there are parts of it I'm not a fan of. Uh, so one of the things that's really amazing about this movie is, despite what Neil deGrasse Tyson might say, it's very accurate <laughs> to... <laughs> and it's... I mean, yeah, there's there's little things little things that had to be fudged, um, you know, in order just to tell a story, factual things about space travel, or whatever. But it very, it's it 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 finds the thrill in the mundanity of space. It doesn't need to have lasers. It's just like, oh no, just the fact that you're just fucking floating around out there, and the idea of concepts of momentum and inertia and all of that, like yeah. fucking basic Newtonian physics, suddenly become the most thrilling thing you could ever see in a movie. Um, like just seeing her floating and then like trying to correct herself and all that. It's just like amazing. And it's clear cut. But part of that is also that space, there's no sound, right? In space, no one can hear you scream. And there are parts of this when there, um, when a meteorites, and this is in the trailer, so it's not spoiling anything. Like the things that fucks everything is sort of like this shower of meteorite debris or something similar like that. Um, and it's breaking all this stuff, and you don't hear explosions at yeah, all. That's you don't hear crushing so metal. Cool. It's amazing, but what you do hear is a very overbearing score at that point. It's almost as if they were afraid. You know, there's it's it's the same reason whenever you see like a computer in a movie, you always hear sound effects whenever someone's like, like no one's computer is that fucking noisy when they're just on the <laughs> internet. <laughs> but it's just because any image has to be represented with a sound. That's just sort of the rule of film sound design. And because and because this is a movie that's true to science, they couldn't throw in a lot of explosions. They just felt they had to put something there, and they just put this really overbearing score, which is like, bah, like, this is exciting. Whereas if there was a version of this movie that didn't have any soundtrack, and you just saw her tumbling around and, and you know breathing heavily and screaming as shit's exploding behind her, but you don't hear any of it, that would be like... That would be insane. That would just be so amazing and beautiful, and and so it bums me out a little bit. The, the slight concessions that had to be made, but then again, this is I'm sure a multi hundred million dollar picture uh, to make, and I'm sure, and considering that it is that, and considering how expensive this movie must have been, and how great special effects are and everything, the fact that uh, Alfonso Caron had to make so few concessions to you know, Hollywood or whatever. I don't know. It's right. it's exciting. Well, I, 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 uh, I, I agree with you, but I, the score thing didn't bother me. I thought it, I thought no. It worked. I thought it worked. I mean, it's... I understand, like, that would be really cool to see, definitely, that version without the score, but um, I guess it, just in the awe of everything, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, it's a Hollywood movie... I sort of have to just look past that overbearing score to where, you know, being so immersed into the world of this movie, it just felt right. Like, emotionally, it felt fine to me. Although, I normally, I am on your side with scores that are manipulative. And yeah. making the audience, hey, feel this right now, kind of thing. But for some reason, like, I guess, just got swept up in the whole thing. Oh, absolutely. So. It's it's really an amazing experience. It is. Um, don't wait. And, go now. Yeah, yeah, big, big screen. Um, yeah, I went to Navy Pier's like real, like weird IMAX thing, and it's it was insane. <laughs> it was like, oh man, I remember when I uh, my mom took me to see uh, Mission to Mars, and she had to leave halfway through because the camera floating around like just made her yeah. want to puke. And I, I, I was like, oh man, I hope no one in here has motion sickness because if you have motion sickness, it's gonna be 
it's going to be way too much for you. Um, and Signature Bullock's pretty good, which is surprising. Yeah. It's, it's not a, like a, a groundbreaking performance or anything, but she's good in it. Yeah, I think she'll be nominated again, probably. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. George Clooney's better, but George Clooney's better. So. Always <laughs> charming. Yeah. Um. What do you want to talk any... about real quick? Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know. I have a lot to talk about. Um, I've been, you know, watching horror movies and stuff. Uh, I watched Nosferatu for it's basically the first time because I didn't really remember anything from when I first saw it uh, in high school. Which one? Um. Oh, I the original. I remember liking uh, Herzog's uh, Nosferatu. I should watch that again now yeah, that I've seen it. Too. It's been a while. It's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely um, great. So I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I'm not really a fan of Dracula as a character. Um, how do you guys feel about like Dracula, that story, basically? It depends on the film. I mean, there's a lot of shitty Dracula movies out there. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, there's, and even there's more a lot mediocre of... ones, so... But, I mean, just in general, like, because, I mean, there's a lot of shitty Frankenstein movies, but I think right. the story of Frankenstein, like, on its own is just, that's a good story. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think Dracula, as written, I mean, I like the novel, but I don't think Dracula, as written, has a lot of weight to it. So it really just depends on what any given filmmaker adds to it themselves, as to whether or not it, it actually really works for me. Nosferatu, it, it changes, it makes yeah. changes just so they wouldn't right. get sued. And they end up getting sued anyway. But um, So before I saw Nosferatu, I watched Horror of Dracula, which is the one that by Terrence Fisher, and that's what our friend Robert Reinecke has been you know, just hammering us on. Um, and so I was really excited to see Horror of Dracula. And it's good. I, it's, it's probably my favorite Hammer horror movie I've seen. Not that I've seen a whole bunch, but I tend not to be a huge fan of that studio's output. Um but it's still just like, oh, how do why do I care about this? Like like for me, like you know, story of Frankenstein or even like the Wolfman and the universe, universal Wolfman, like there's just like, oh, he's a tragic character. Yeah. There's sort of broader ph- philosophical themes where like Dracula is just a monster. Like he's just he shows up and then a monster hunter comes and kills him. Like um so, I, I mean, I love Peter Cushing in Horror of Dracula, and that's what made that me enjoy that movie, despite not caring at all what happened. Cushing and Christopher Lee, huh? Uh, yeah, but Christopher Lee is not so great in Horror of Dracula. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of that icon. He has strikes an iconic image, but he doesn't not give him a lot to do. He doesn't really have any dialogue. <laughs> like He actually has no dialogue in the in the one he did after it. Yeah, actually, uh, so have you guys heard of the Angry Video Game Nerd? I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, okay, so his name is James Rolfe, and he he has a site called Cinemasker, and he does a lot of videos other than that as well. And for Octobers, he does uh, videos on horror movies and stuff, and sometimes he'll just cover a whole series. And I've been, so after watching Horror of Dracula, I watched, he did one on all the whole Hammer Horror um, series, and it's actually really good. So if you look up Cinemasker, I think it's called Monster Madness, um, right now he's covering all the Gamera movies. So, oh god, uh, that's gonna take a while. Yeah, that that. So I no, yeah. So you, I encourage you to see that. But anyway, Nosferatu. I thought, but uh, so I thought Horror of Dracula would be like that's the best possible version because it has good actors and it's beautifully shot and the color is great and it's kind of creepy and all that deep blood red and it's quick paced like that's the best version. But Nosferatu, 
is so good. Mm-hmm. Like, I was really not... I mean, I knew it was, you know, I, I knew it was a classic and everything, but I just also knew that it was a silent film, and it, I knew it was a silent film version of a story I didn't care about, so I was really skeptical. But not, but in that movie, Count Orlock is just like the, the Dracula character. He's just... He's like this so elemental. Like every, it's his sort of terror is represented as a plague. So like when he arrives in the town, like you don't see him attacking anyone, but you just see bodies coming out of buildings. Like people just being like, "Oh, he's claimed his twelfth victim." And like there's this really wide, broad scale to his evil. Like at one point he's yeah. staring at a photograph, and then it cuts to the woman the photograph is of, and she's like feels his presence, like. His powers aren't really explained. The rules of vampirism are not terribly explained. Like, there's there's this clunky thing exposition where they have a book on vampires, and it just sort of says, anyway, like whenever they need to know anything about vampires, and then it just shows a page that says what they need to know. <laughs> but um, so but there's not like a lot of long-winded things about the history of vampires and everything. Like he just feels like this like force of evil, um, which is really cool, and it's. And it makes it creepy movie, so it makes it even in the scenes where nothing particular, like any even a given scene that's not particularly interesting, just knowing it exists in a world where his dominion is sort of just growing and expanding, and he's sort of let loose on this town, and they're all panicking. Like it's so amazing. That's I'm really I was really blown away by Nosferatu. Yeah, I really want to rewatch that and then follow it up with uh, Shadow of the Vampire, which I thought mm-hmm. was really interesting. Um, but I just I, I remember feeling that sort of palpable atmosphere and discomfort watching it. Uh, you know, it's like Bela Lugosi, he might have provided, like, the most iconic version of Dracula, but uh, Shrek's is really the most memorable for me because of, like you said, how he's just this force of nature and has this, like, rat-like quality to him. And it's just right. visually striking. Yeah. Right, he doesn't feel like an evil uh, aristocrat. He feels like a <laughs> demon. Right. So, uh, yeah, I saw that. I saw a new Kathleen Hanna documentary uh, called Punk Singer. Not good. It's, I mean, if you like, if you don't, if you're not picky about documentaries and you like Riot Girl, it's it, it's worth seeing. But as someone who just cannot abide uh, like biopic documentaries anymore, where it's just a bunch of people talking heads and stuff, yeah. it was really, really dreadful. I saw it was real. Bass player from Hole who uh, <laughs> overdosed, and it was just, yeah like. Oh, it's cool to see all these people talking. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, it's like hardly a movie. Yeah, it just feels like television. Um, or it might have been about the drummer. I can't remember. The biggest, the biggest offense that the punk singer makes is that it has all of this footage of Bikini Kill playing live. And I don't know, do you either guys? I'm, I'm, uh, no, or are fans of Bikini Kill and Kathleen Hanna and La Tigra and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. I. Never heard of. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, it, it was a it was a subgenre of punk that happened in the early '90s, where it was just very feminist powered oh, okay. uh, punk rock music. Mm-hmm. And Bikini Kill's probably, other than the Ramones, are my favorite punk rock band. So there's all this footage of Bikini Kill, and it's amazing. Kathleen has this great force of nature on stage, um, and she has this weird little girl voice when she sings. So it's just this great juxtaposition. But every performance that you see is just an album cut that they dub over concert footage. Uh, you don't actually hear uh, any live performing. Oh. Like, what bullshit. Like, <laughs> like it's, 
Like, it's basically just Kathleen Hanna for dummies. For It's someone who's like, I don't know what Riot Girl is. What is Riot Girl? And someone else is like, oh, you're too lazy to read a book? Here, watch this movie. Mm. Um, I feel like documentaries have gotten very popular recently, not because people are interested in learning and nonfiction, but because people are not less interested in reading. Like, a lot of documentaries I see now, the reason they exist seems to be, well, it's easier than reading a book about the same subject. I, I I love watching documentaries about bands, and I you know especially when I love them. And this, the one of the more recent ones I saw was uh, the Sound City documentary with uh, Dave Grohl talking about why this particular studio was so um, you know monumental for so many artists, and why like you could never get a particular sound out of any other soundboard than this particular one, and that was like. Again, kind of, it follows the same traditions of music documentaries to where you become aware that you're just watching another Talking Heads documentary with a lot of cool musicians, and then when you get if only it was another Talking Heads documentary. (laughs) Yeah, very good, Patrick. Very good. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but you know the the performance, the the way it's filmed, it's just pretty standard, and I I just don't understand. You know, like, that's kind of why it'd be curious to watch, uh, you know, the Metallica film in terms of the concert footage. Like, I hear it's pretty well directed, and I, never saw, the, I never saw the Rolling Stones one that Scorsese did, but... I saw a bit of it, but um, I think I fell asleep. Um, not because yeah. it was boring, but because uh, I was just really tired, and I never got I around. Would... I, I think I sent it back into Netflix because um, there was something else I really wanted to watch more. Mm-hmm. I probably would fall asleep because I'd be bored. (laughs) (laughs) Was Kathleen Hanna, like, uh, a good subject for the documentary in terms of, did she, um, did she follow the sort of behind the music uh, pattern of... Well, here's what's interesting about Kathleen Hanna. Like I said, she's this incredible force of nature and everything on stage, Mm -hmm. but the reason, like... It's a it's a thread that is uh, that the movie opens with and then sort of like forgets about until it's time to remember it again. So it's not really a really good it's not really a well executed through thread. But the idea behind it, the question people ask the camera after they're prompted by the filmmaker, I imagine, <laughs> is what happened to Kathleen Hanna? Where did she uh, go? Why okay. did she just disappear? And the answer is she has like state she has late stage Lyme disease. Ah. Uh. So. There's actually a really fast... So here's one of the really frustrating things about this movie. I'm glad you brought that up. I actually forgot about this. really frustrating thing about this movie is that there's a fascinating story to be told in someone who is this insane just ball of fury and energy and just, like, fucking feminine righteous anger. And, like, you see her performing, and it's just insane. And it's, like... And she's, and her you hear her singing, and, and you hear her screaming on the record, and it's... And it just grabs you by the throat, and it's amazing. And you see her now, and she's very weak, you know, and she's very frail, and she's very fragile. And she is married to, um, I believe, Ad Rock from uh, Beastie Boys. Oh. So they got married. Yeah, they got married like in the late '90s, um, and they've been married since. Um, and you see these two people who, in their 20s and 30s or whatever, were like crazy rabble rouser, like energetic countercultural music, you know, musicians. And then you see a scene where Ad like where she's just sitting on the toilet as Ad Rock sort of gives her her shot, and it's this really 
touching, like, quiet moment. It's really powerful, and it's just that juxtaposition of who these people were and who they are now and just sort of, like, that's what life serves you up sometimes. Like, that's a really fascinating story, and if this was a movie about that, like, that would really be great. But what this is is a biopic, and then the last 20 minutes they go, by the way, here she is now, and... From the way they depict her, it seems like maybe she's just not the kind of person who would want to be portrayed as so... Like, she's not the kind of person who would want to reveal herself as that vulnerable. Um, like, I... I So, and, you know, you know, you can totally... I can totally respect that. Like, you don't want necessarily want to see have a camera following you around during your most pathetic moments all the time. <laughs> like, but that would have been a movie worth making. Like, that would have been a really interesting story. And you could have, if, if the first 15 minutes was telling the story of Kathleen Hanna and the rest of the movie was telling the story of Kathleen Hanna in 2013, 2012, like, with Lyme disease and about what Lyme disease is like and what it's like to live with Lyme disease and how she's trying to get back into music and how it's changed the way she does music and everything, like, that would be amazing, but that's not what the movie is. That's and it's really disappointing. When yeah. you see the potential yeah. there and it's not fully realized, like... Yeah. I remember seeing Searching for Deborah Winger, and it was really just a bunch of celebrities going, What happened? <laughs> for, for the whole movie. Including Fred Willard? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, I mean, like, they, Rosanna Arquette, I think she's the one who did it, and she wanted to, like, examine, you know, uh, women in Hollywood and sort of. Sit, you know, cover the whole like. Well, when you, when you reach a certain age, there's not enough roles for you there, and it's just a bunch of commentary from different people. Like, there, there's nothing cinematic about it. It's almost like listening to a podcast with a bunch of different interviews. Uh, but you know, I mean, all it came down to is like, Deborah Winger got sick of acting. <laughs> you know, like there's no, there was no need to tell that story. <laughs> you know, I, I, like it didn't have any big epiphany or anything you know, worth discussing for 90 minutes other than just things that we kind of know a lot about and read about in other interviews from these actresses. You know what else was full of potential and completely squandered it? Wes Craven's new nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad that you're on my side on that one. You get the Segway award. Yeah. (laughs) Um, that That is a good point. We should probably move on to the director of the episode. Who's that? That would be Mr. Wes Craven. Well, I guess I'll do it alone. Wes Craven. <laughs> I thought we were talking Fucker. about Abe Snake. Oh, leaving me abandoned. <laughs> oh, I'm so mad. You just left me hanging there. Oh, you, Phil Collins is going to write a song about this. You saw me drowning, and you could have lent a hand, and he's going to send you a ticket. And you're going to be in the front row of his concert, and he's going to sing that right to you, and you're going to know that you should have <laughs> said Wes Craven with me on that podcast, but you didn't. And then you'll go and kill yourself. Shot 
her Uh-huh, yeah Cut up Fred Krueger Going for that nightmare murder Pass me a sequel It's really clever and funny Cause I wanna be someone like Wes Craven Yeah Wes Craven and me Study psychology And we stare at the beautiful teenager She's gonna kill you I know, no, she's gonna stab me Let's watch the hills have eyes Coming through in digital When Wes Craven scares you You are watching one of his movies What's your favorite scary movie? Is it directed by Wes Craven? And you want to know more about him? Well, here we go. Wes Craven was born in Cleveland, Ohio. The son of Carolyn and Paul Craven. Craven earned an undergraduate degree in English and psychology from Wheaton College in Illinois, which, oddly enough, isn't too far from where Jim and Patrick used to live. He later got a master's degree in philosophy and writing from Johns Hopkins University. Craven Craven briefly taught English at Westminster College and was a humanities professor as well. His first job in the film industry was a sound editor for a post-production company in New York City. Craven left the academic world for the more lubricated role of pornographic film director. In the documentary Inside Deep Throat, Craven says on camera he made many X-rated films under pseudonyms while learning his directing craft. While his role in Deep Throat is undisclosed, most of his early known work involved writing, film editing, or both. But then in 1972, Wes Craven directed his controversial first feature film, The Last House on the Left, followed by a thematically similar tale of survival called The Hills Have Eyes. His breakthrough success, A Nightmare on Elm Street, spawned off one of the highest grossing horror film franchises of all time with his second comeback being in 1996 with the meta-horror slasher comedy Scream. But before we jump to that classic, let's go back to the 70s to hear what our hosts and guests think about The Hills Have Eyes. Like I said at the beginning, I'm kind of a fan of Wes Craven, despite realizing, you know, he's not one of the best filmmakers of the genre, I would say. Uh, but I, I like his ideas, you know, surrounding... Obviously, dream and versus reality, and the metafictions and the assault on Western values that he touched. A lot of the seventies really were an interesting time for horror, as a response to you know both Vietnam and this like this disillusionment of family values. Um, and with Texas Chainsaw Massacre being the prime example for something like that, and uh, the sort of go-to template for stories. That revolved around a group of individuals who find themselves thrust into a survival of the fittest environment. Uh, Wes Craven took it upon himself with, uh, you know, for, for his early films, Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes. Uh, Last House was a loose remake of The Virgin Spring and was a cult success, and critics got behind it, particularly Roger Ebert. Um, 
The Hills Have Eyes takes a reversed approach by having the family unit crash into the world of these cannibalistic villains with, um, again, much like The Last House on the Left, mixed results for me. Um, like, I, I definitely like it more than Last House on the Left because the tone is way more consistent. And I right. like that it sort of explores you know, the more primal instincts of man when his you know, safe haven is attacked. Uh, and there are some really memorable moments. But it does take a while to get going, I think, that pacing isn't really its strong suit. Uh, but Really? I, yeah. I, I would say pacing is its strong suit. Yeah. I would, that's, that felt like a while before we got to, you know, the uh, confrontations. But once it gets there, I mean, it builds up. I mean, it, I wouldn't say it's, you know, uh, something I would consider to be, uh, you know, a negative about the movie. I just, I, I just became more aware of it, I guess. And it, it's, it's, it's definitely light years better than the remake, um, which is the opposite, I would say, with Last House on the Left. But, um, you know, it becomes an exploitation picture and you know it has that sociological indictment about the breakdown of uh family values that i kind of, uh, a little bit a little bit that's that is probably i'd say its weakest point yeah. uh, in a rewatch yeah well i will yeah. say this still works for me it's it still works for me in ways that like i don't know obviously i hate to bring this up again but devil's rejects did not work for me i think this works and I just like Rob Zombie wants to echo this style of horror film, and for me, he just made a pale imitation of this. Uh, and you know, the what, what can I say? I think I think Wes Craven has um, a strong sense of tension in his earlier films, at least that you know sort of became he, he just became kind of gimmicky and more about plot and kind of overplotting with a lot of his later films and sort of recycling his ideas. But here it seems fresh and the the gore and brutality is effective. But, you know, again, I don't I, I wouldn't put this up there in, you know, like the top horror films of all time or anything, but I I had okay time watching it again. Daniel? <laughs> um I, I actually I don't think I'd seen this and since the uh, remake came out, so it had been quite a while since I sat down with it. I actually watched it last night right before I went to bed. Um, I like it. I don't love it. Uh, it definitely has its problems. Uh, it does have some pacing issues. It does gloss over um, a little bit Craven's ongoing obsession with the destruction of the family unit. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's kind of a shaggy film, but I I really enjoy it for that for the most part. I could have done without uh, Doug's short shorts, but other than that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's it's really interesting that you guys are saying it's sort of slow and shy. Like you, I, I would agree that it is not particularly eventful, right? Like so, right. the main thing right. is it it's a simple. I'm not I'm not going to say like gravity because gravity is like light years, light years. Blah, 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 blah. Ah. Shoot myself in the head. Um, gravity's way better than this in pretty much every aspect. Um, other than it's, it has less rape. Um, which I guess, <laughs> like, probably would not have been appropriate. Um, I don't know. Sand, <laughs> to see, like, Sandra Bullock rape the Hubble? I don't know. That's Rape's gross. I'm space. sorry. 
I apologize for that. Um, okay, so, uh, but what I like about Hills of Eyes is, number one, and I don't recall this being the case in the remake, uh, is that it sets up the desperation of the mutant people. Like, um, r- immediately, like, the first thing you see is one of the mutant girls um, say, oh, we're starving to death, by right. the way, out in the desert, so I need your food. And the guy's like, I got nothing for you. Because uh, he's typical old man who owns a gas station in a horror movie. <laughs> and by the way, there's no non-white people who own gas stations in horror movies. It's always old, crazy white men. <laughs> I, for one, I like to see like just a young Asian be like, "Yeah, no, I did. I crunch the numbers. Uh, it's a good place to open a gas station." Hi, how you doing? By the way, there's a curse. No, like, they're always like stumpy from Rio Bravo. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, they're always stumpy from Rio Bravo. But it it sets up the desperation of these are. The cannibals, they are starving to death. And it's like, it really makes it less about... It, it turns them a slightly less into monsters for a little bit, um, yeah, which which I enjoyed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that they kill the dog and eat it, like, I think if I was in their situation, I'd kill that fucking dog and eat it too. Like, Probably. Like, that's that that's that seems totally... But then, you know, once the actual assault on the camper happens, then they're just, like, crazy. Crazy monsters, and this is where the breakdown of of Wes Craven's so-called sort of themes that he tries to tackle in this movie, where it's like, who are the real monsters? It's like, eh, I think it's the ones who gleefully raped and killed a bunch of people and for no reason. I think those baby. are the real monsters. I mean, they want they want to eat. Yeah, a baby. like that are gonna <laughs> they want to eat a goddamn baby. Like, so like, oh, I can't believe, look at how horrible they've become. I'm like, no, nope, no, nope, not true, not true. They're pretty much just. They're not even, yeah, they're just doing whatever they can because they're pretty much dead either way. But I think uh, I haven't watched, I haven't watched the remake in years either. And uh, yeah, we should probably shouldn't talk about the remake unless we could really speak to details. But it, it, uh, and of course, it, it changes the uh, the mutant cannibals' backstory completely. And and like you said, they're they're certainly not as desperate. I wouldn't quite call them thriving, from what I remember, but they seem to be pretty well off for their situation. But I would say. Uh, in terms of the corruption of the uh, normal society family uh, is dealt, probably dealt with a little more there. Um, not so much to make them unsympathetic, but I just recall Doug's journey from sheepish son-in-law to mm-hmm. badass who must save his baby being a bit more severe in the remake. So, like, Yeah, there's not really a very strong character arc to be no, found in Wes Craven's Hills Have Eyes. Yeah. <laughs> but... So that tension to me carried the movie. And so while, you know, it's not a particularly eventful movie, it never felt slow or sluggish or shaggy because it just felt like shit is about to go down and the tension was building and building. And then once it did pay off in that attack on the camper, that is insane. That whole scene where it's like, oh, your father's on fire and crucified in the fat field. By the way, while he's there, uh, we're stealing your baby. Stealing and food, raping your sister, <laughs> or raping your sister slash daughter, like, like yeah. that is insane. Like it's insanely brutal, and just the gunshots. Like again, it's not like uh, I think there's something actually more startling about seeing someone killed with a gun in a horror movie um, than an action movie. Yeah, it's, it's well, no, even not more, well, fact. Was, no, for sure. Well, definitely more than an action movie, but I'll also say like even more than stabbing. Even like right. there's something about just the suddenness in which two people, two members of this family who had characters and they had 
relationships with all these people. And who I mean, none of the acting is particularly good. I think Dee Wallace is probably the best actor in the whole movie. As she um, always is. Though, yeah. and she gets just killed, like just in, like she's there and she's just screaming, "Don't take my baby!" And then she's dead. Like it's right. so sudden, it's so brutal, and not in its violence necessarily, but just in its the tone and in, in its yeah, just brutality. Yeah, and the spontaneity of it, the brutality. And that and and it really gets across that just that feeling that a lot of horror movies don't really get across because the kills are set up as set pieces or whatever, which is just like the horror, the real horror of someone being killed is just like that concept. Like any movie that actually deals with death and someone dealing with mourning someone's death or whatever, just it's that the horror of that person was there and now they're not there anymore and just how quickly that can happen. Um, And this is actually one of the few horror movies I've seen, like, where, like, that just hit me really fucking hard. Like, wow, that person's dead now. Like, that person's no longer alive. Like, which is an insane thing to do, because pretty much every horror movie is predicated upon murder, like, (laughs) of some kind. Um, You know, like, there's, like, what, Poltergeist? There's some, like, Haunted House movies where people aren't being murdered left and right. But that's about it. Um, I, that, so that attack on the camper is so effective, and that being the payoff of knowing that, Cannibals are watching them, knowing that the dog has been eaten, like just knowing that they're just closing on him is so good. Um, and here's the thing that Wes Craven does, which is just blows my mind, because um, he does this a lot. He did this in literally he did this in his previous. Well, I think his previous movie to this was a porno, but his previous like <laughs> actual horror movie, which was Last House on the Left, which is he follows up this just raw brutality where it's just like cutting out all the pageantry and the bullshit it's just like this is a horrible act that you just witnessed and it's supposed to mark you and then there's like fucking all this like he just says like booby traps like he's obsessed with booby traps why are there so many booby traps in Wes Craven movies (laughs) like what is the weird Wes Craven home alone like he like like Kevin McAllister grows up and directs (laughs) <laughs> like kills have eyes. Like it's I don't know why he's obsessed with booby traps. And it's just like this weird bullshit thing, like someone's standing in a certain place and then oop, the ropes got him and now they're being dragged across the <laughs> desert by their legs. Like like it's this bullshit that only happens in movies and it just completely takes you out of it. And it's so it's so anticlimactic this movie. Patrick, he's into survival. Oh like man. Yeah. That's <laughs> But this this dumb family who's just like, we're gonna go find silver in a silver mine. Like suddenly they're like, at least they in Nightmare on Elm Street, he showed Nancy like reading a like uh, yeah, Soldiers of Fortune magazine or something (laughs) like that. Like it's it's Uh, this he has this he has this thing where he just he he sabotages himself a lot in his movies. I think where he'll just. Where he'll set up something that has a genuinely creepy tone. Like, I feel the same way about the booby traps in Nightmare on Elm Street. I think Nightmare on Elm Street's a way better movie, and it doesn't hurt it as much. Um, but, like, just the idea of something as elemental as being hunted by some beast, half beast, half human, that's coming in and, and closing in on your family, and it's going to kill you and eat you and eat your baby. Like, that is a really primal fear. Like, that's the primal fear, which is survival and protection, like, of your family. And then to just, like, bog it down in that sort of thing. Like, the same way with Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, it's so surreal, and it's creepy, and it's a great premise. But then it's like, you see Nancy setting up, like, filling a light bulb with gunpowder, and you're like, what movie <laughs> am I watching? <laughs> like, 
Like, who is this it, for? Like, it gets undercut by that stuff. Absolutely. It it, it's way less. And even Scream, like, Scream, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. Like, Scream is, there's a lot about that movie that's really effective. But whenever the movie becomes the killer chasing the victim, uh-huh. like, I, the other thing is, Wes Craven, like, is, he has this, I don't know if he's, if this is his version of trying to, like, empower his female characters or what, but his killers, like, are constantly just getting vases cracked over their heads and, like, just kicked downstairs and just, like, looked really weak. Like, the end of Red Eye is that way, too. Like, at no point are you really <laughs> yeah. afraid that Rachel McAdams is going to get killed because just Cillian Murphy just gets his ass handed to him for the last 20 minutes of that movie. Yep. That's it. Like, he, he doesn't, like, it's... They all read sab- funny, too. <laughs> That's true. My, like, when my two-and-a-half-year-old gets really excited, like, if, if I'm, I'm watching them during the day and my wife comes to the door... He does this run where his legs are moving, but his knees aren't quite bending, so he's kind of, like, shuffling <laughs> side to side. And that's the way most of Wes, Kill- Wes Craven's killers run in movies. Oh, especially Freddy in that first dream. It's just not intimidating at all. <laughs> yeah. like, do you think that you think Wes Craven is the choreographer on it, like, uncredited choreographer for his movies? And he's like, look. Sometimes I wonder. He's like, I was reading this article about the true nature of fear, and it says you should toddle around like you don't have all your motor <laughs> skills. It's like they're just gleefully running after the person they're going to kill like a child, and it's just this weird shuffle. So, yeah, like I think the first hour of this movie is really, really strong. And the first hour of this movie is what I remember from... Right. And also just the fact that they're just like casually tossing around the baby and just like, oh, we're going to eat the baby. Look at this. It's like a little, little treat. Like it is so horrifying. It's really yeah. effective. Yes, it is. It's, it's just almost like Craven does have problems with ending his movies. Like they, they just <sighs> wind up relying on tropes or these elaborate gimmicks or something. I mean, yeah, I, it's, it's, I mean, I understand the way things play out here, but it, it does, just from the booby traps on, it does become less effective. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know. And, I mean, if you want to talk about him having trouble with ending his movies, you can look at the Scream sequels. Those always have to be rewritten a hundred times. You look at Cursed and My Soul to Take, where he those got <laughs> reshot and rewritten a ton of times and re-edited, like... It's it's almost as if he just doesn't. I, don't, I like you can't say he doesn't know how to tell a story because some of his movies are just phenomenal. And then I don't, it's really strange. I can't quite put my finger on what Wes Craven's problem is, other than just undercutting himself. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mentioned the porno. Um, it actually. <laughs> <laughs> your other oh segue. man, he, he he messes up the ending. <laughs> There's a pretty clear way endings and pornos are supposed to happen. Right, exactly. It's such an odd movie because it plays like this weird family drama that fits into his, you know, corruption of Western values, destruction of the family unit type film that he could only get made if he shoved orgy scenes into it. (laughs) Because... (laughs) It in between the sex scenes, it's it's got this weird like thriller vibe to it. It's not good at all. It's probably his worst film, but it's just it's just really odd. I, I don't really know how to describe it. <laughs> oh, he also cast himself in the uh, position role. 
<laughs> like, <laughs> like Russ Meyer style. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> I I don't know. Wes Craven's a weird nut to crack because yeah. he's not quite an auteur, but then shit keeps showing up in all of his movies, yeah, and you're. Yep. He's t- he's taken a few too many for hire jobs to to quite you know slide into under that auteur line, but yeah. Here's okay. You want to you want to talk about and we're gonna get to scream in a second. Anything else that's really significant to add to Hills of Eyes? No, go ahead. Okay, but but here's to me what defines um, why I don't find Wes Craven that interesting. And I I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to make it. Like, we chose because it's October, and we wanted to do horror movie directors. And if we had seen more horror... I'm sure there are other directors that would be more uh, deserving and more interesting to examine, but we just... Wes Craven is just a big name that we hadn't done, so... Um, so, I don't want to make it seem like we're just picking him just to pick on him, because I do think he's a really cool guy, and I really think he's interesting, and I think he's made really great movies. Um, a cup, two. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's made two. Two of them. I love hearing him in interviews. I mean... Why yeah, never absolutely. In commentaries. Yeah, it was great. Um, so, but so he does scream, and scream takes off, and it's a huge success. Okay, he does scream too. It's a bigger success. It's scream too. It's a powerhouse franchise. He's the guy behind it. He is the Gore Verbinski to this Pirates of the Caribbean of the late nineties. Like, <laughs> like, um. Uh, I mean, obviously, tons of differences, but you know what I mean. Like, like it's he, like he, you can't say like it's not like the, it's not like Miramax can say. Well, he didn't really have anything to do with the success. Right. No, and him and Kevin Williamson made this thing happen um, and took those risks. And so, what does he do with that? Like, with when he is given to the keys to Hollywood, and they go, "All right, you know what? You you spent your time. I'm sure in director's jail a couple times. You have." You've you've done so many for higher jobs because that's all you could only work you could get and you just wanted to keep working. Guess what? You have the keys to the city. What movie do you want to make? And he makes like fucking dangerous minds. Like right? Like he just makes <laughs> music of the isn't music of the heart just like Meryl Streep like a white woman coming to inner city and just teaching like yep. black people how great violin is? Like yep. Yep. Like I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, so maybe it's brilliant, but everything I've heard about it makes it sound like it's very typical, like that kind of movie. It's like Man, like, it's that's like the least interest. Like, if if if, <laughs> and I really do think like a director's passion project says a lot about that director. Like, the the Richard Kelly went. I mean, Richard Kelly's a weird example because Donnie Darko wasn't a studio film or whatever. But like, you know what I mean? Like, Inception says a lot about Christopher Nolan. The movie that he made after that he only could make because he did The Dark Knight, and that was his for him big budget like. That's so. That says so much about Christopher Nolan. And like, Wes Craven. I guess all that really says about Wes Craven is that he's kind of boring. Like, <laughs> know, not a great artist. Like, I know he had, he had been desperately trying to make something other than horror since the the mid '80s, and just yeah, it, it oh, just but happen. he came close with Deadly Friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it. it Obviously, it was always a little violent and have some dream imagery in it, but it wasn't not intended that turned out to be like it was supposed to be more of a uh, like a lake. That's yeah. what it was supposed to be. But he, I guess, after he made 
you know, uh, Scream and Scream 2, uh, the Weinsteins handed him a list. He said he wanted to do a non-horror movie, and they said, well, here's here's what we own the rights to. You know, pick whatever you want, and you can make it. And Well, Music of the Heart is what he chose for whatever reason. I think he just he just jumped yeah. it. Probably whatever on the list was completely outside of his wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. I guess I guess what's crazy to me is okay, so him not wanting to do a horror movie makes complete sense. Right. Like John Carpenter has been had to do, had to deal with the same thing where he had to sort of smuggle westerns and stuff into his horror. Movie. Yeah. He's like because he just had to because he just wanted to do something other than horror all the time. And again, but he, like he was a director who wanted to tackle something Hitchcockian with Red Eye. Oh well, that's well, Red Eye's in. Red Eye, I think, is a better, you know, much better movie. I, I like oh, Red Eye yeah. quite a bit, but like, yeah, but, <clears throat> but like, someone as well read as Wes Craven, who clearly is just like, you know, he was a teacher, he was a, you know, a college professor, and he constantly talking about all these articles, and his, and the movies that he writes and directs often deal with like reality and he loves psychology, not always successfully, but like to just do all that and then just then what, like, what's your ultimate pet dream project? Uh, music of the heart, like that's really disappointing. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed in you, Wes Craven. I want you to know. By the way, Wes Craven, not answer any of my tweets. Uh, do you guys follow me on Twitter? I've been tweeting at Wes. I've been tweeting at Wes Craven for the past two weeks, um, and everyone who starred in a Wes Craven movie. I told Shannon Elizabeth while I was watching Cursed that I was watching her get eaten by a werewolf. So <laughs> she didn't reply either. Um, and and then I discovered Cillian Murphy had a Twitter for one day, and he said, "I'm going to get this thing verified." And that was the last tweet he ever made. <laughs> oh. That guy's eyes, my god! Beautiful man, beautiful man, Cillian Murphy. Mm-hmm. My uh, my wife would probably leave me for him. <laughs> I would I would I would leave the world for him. I would, I would go to space. I hate space. I'd go to space for Cillian Murphy. Or go into the woods. For yeah, yeah. Or I'd or I'd kill a senator for Cillian Murphy. <laughs> uh, that's the mo- that's the least realistic thing about Red Eye is that Rachel McAdams doesn't just look into Cillian Murphy's eyes and go yes whatever you say. <laughs> um, anyway, we should talk about Scream because Scream's actually a really good movie. It's great. It's absolutely great, and unfortunately, the sequels aren't. I I rewatched them all and liked them all even less this time. Scream is. A perfect example of what can happen when Williamson and Craven are left alone to do whatever it is they want to do. Mm-hmm. They were messed with completely on the sequels, and the results are decent to god awful. <laughs> I I'm okay with most of them. I mean, I mean, I don't I don't hate any of them, but it's I just watch them and go, okay, there's some interesting hooks here, but they. Uh, they just don't do anything with them, or they're just hamstrung by a rushed production, or bringing in a crappy writer to redo whatever it was that they were initially going for. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's safe to say that the internet ruined the Scream sequels yeah. <laughs> because all of those sequels were were uh, were ruined by the fact that they had to be generic enough that they could write five different endings for who the killer might be. So that if one leaked on the internet, there was like plausible deniability, like oh that might not be the right one, because they were freaking out about the the actual identity of the killers being leaked on the internet, which is like I mean, I'm sure it was a big deal in you know 1998 or whatever, but in fucking 2013, I wish they would have just gone with the fucking script they wrote. Yeah. Um. But 
we'd have been better off. But I do think those movies are pretty entertaining. But Scream itself is a very singular thing. Um, yeah. And the, actually, speaking of sequels, the crazy thing about Scream, um, and I can't tell if this is just another meta-fictional sort of wink that Kevin Williamson does, is Scream plays like the sequel to a horror movie that we haven't seen, which it's, is something uh, that I think I, gets I forgotten a lot. That, that cracks me up, that always cracks me up about it, is that all of the backstory about Maureen Prescott and Sidney's mom and everything, and just being like, oh, it's just like, oh, it's happening again. Like, that's every second yeah. slasher movie sequel. It's just like, it's happening again. But this one, that's the first one. And it's interesting that Cotton Weary is played by a famous actor, but he's like... Like Cotton, Cotton, uh, like they show footage of Cotton Weary. I think in the first one, is that correct or am I transposing? Yeah. On they TV do a few times. Yeah, they yeah, show. He probably has about a minute worth of footage, at most. Yeah, and it's, you know, and it's um, oh, I'm sorry, bad with names. Uh, yeah, it's Leave Schreiber. Like that's a brilliant move, like to make him think that he's going to be popping up at any moment. Also, like <laughs> as making him another suspect, like, I don't know. Well, no, they say he's in jail, so unless he, like, escaped or whatever. But, like, also just, like, yeah, it feels lived in, which is interesting. I um, like the whodunit quality of these movies. That is the single strong, and that's the single strongest thing, I think, of all the movies. Yeah. Um, is that they're really fun to watch, and they <laughs> solve the problem of slasher movies. Uh, or they solve one of the big problems of a lot of slasher movies, which is, hey... What is the audience going to do in between all of those sweet kills? <laughs> like, well, are we going to follow around these boring people that we don't have any investment with because we know they're going to get killed off? And like, no, what we're going to do is play Clue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I've, it's one of the first postmodern horror movies. I mean, it's sort of, we probably mentioned this on the show before, but I think it's an improvement on some of the ideas he had in New Nightmare. Um, oh, for sure. And just uh, it has a lot to say about where we are now in the horror genre in terms of the characters just having so much self awareness about pop culture, and you know that's almost coinciding with you know the birth of the internet at the, around the time. And I just this was one of the best movie experiences I ever had because I saw it opening night with a packed house and. It was exactly like being on a roller coaster. People were screaming and laughing and, you know, just having a great time. And, of course, all the guys hooted and hollered when Rose McGowan's breasts show up very prominently at one point. <laughs> but it's, the, the, apparently those were fake nipples. Oh, okay. Good <laughs> those hard nipples, like when she goes into the garage, like yeah. apparently that was the joke where uh, uh, earlier in the movie, Sydney goes, it's always some large-breasted woman going, and then... Like mm-hmm. the joke was that her best friend has the huge tits and is blonde and yeah, I love the uh, here comes the obligatory tit shot and then they cut to uh, Nev Campbell upstairs taking her shirt off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love that. Love that transition. It's it's a very playful movie and it has a lot of you know so it, the general game of the movie the who done it game of ooh is it Henry Winkler he's kind of losing it for a little bit like. Uh, oh, is it? Is it? Is, oh, the the police chief who we thought was retired. He has the same boots. And in retrospect, like a lot of these people, like, oh no, there's no way they could have been the killer. But if you think about it in terms of like '80s slasher movies, like the killer identity could just be anyone, and it, like they would come up with the most dumb, arbitrary reasons. So like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
because those movies didn't really have the now famous scream scene where the killer just has a long monologue about their motivations for killing a bunch of random people and how they're going to get away with it. And then and then there's a fight. <laughs> like which is a weird way to end a slasher movie, but it's the way every scream movie ends. Um well not this the first scream movie it ends actually with a scene that is as horrifying well almost yeah, no, I'd say as horrifying as the Hills of Eyes like attack on the camper. Which is that fucking really fucked up scene where they're cutting each other. Oh god. Yeah. And there's just there's a real intensity. Um and the fact that the killers are ostensibly teenagers. I mean, I always think it's funny that in the 90s, I think it has says something about like how 90s teenagers viewed themselves that in the films of the 90s, the teenagers were always played by people in their mid to late 20s. Oh yeah, like on 90210 even. <laughs> like if you look at a teen if you look at a movie about high school now, like most people look like they're could be in high school. Right. Uh, and if you look at it then, it's just like Skeet Ulrich. <laughs> like <laughs> you look like a teacher. Like who are you? Um, but, but like, it's just creepy, like, these characters who are, and they're, they're teenagers, and they're just in this kitchen, like, um, I think the way that, that scene is actually shot is something I don't think I've noticed before, is it has a really good job of establishing that kitchen and that, that house as a place, um, so that once they're looking for her and the camera's sort of going between the kitchen and the, like, living room and stuff, it doesn't, it stays put. It still sets the stage, and it makes it feel like a location as opposed to. So you're like so the the milieu of being in a suburban kitchen, hold, like bloodied, holding knives, stabbing each other, like that whole thing, like that is emphasized because of the way it's shot. And there's actually a lot in this movie that is like, oh, this isn't just Kevin Williamson, the Kevin Williamson show. Like Wes Craven did a fucking great job. Like oh, that yeah. opening, that whole opening sequence is really well edited and put together, and and shot, and, you know, the game of the, the Jiffy Pop growing, it's, you know, like, and the and the fact that she still has the, like, there's just a lot of that that's really effective, even with the MPA days, like, kind of harsh cuts to it. Yeah, he, he definitely made his own flourishes, and, and he gave it his all on that one. Yeah, that's what I'm Definitely I, wasn't phoning it in. That's what I'm saying, like, the, there's so many highlights in Wes Craven's filmography, whether it be the opening of Scream or, you know, the certain, like, the body bag in Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, there's just, this, you know, you have those moments that make him stand out. It's just in terms of storytelling and wrapping it all up. Um, I, I, I just think that uh, he's inconsistent in that regard. And it, it's a bummer because, like, I want to get behind uh, even something like Shocker or People Under the Stairs <laughs> because... They're they're goofy messes, but they're still entertaining, uh, right? You know, and and it's usually carried by like uh, a decent performance or somebody hamming it up and having a good time or just cr- creating like this playful you know funhouse, especially with people under the stairs, that makes it stand out. But then again, he just never gets that balance right with tone and you know making it yeah, even horrific. Even his movies that are just, oh, it's goofy and stupid and over-the-top and silly, like, they're never satisfying in the same way, like, really good, goofy, over-the-top, stupid and silly horror movies. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he, like People in Upstairs is fucking wackadoo and crazy and fun, but it's not Return of the Living Dead. It's not the Blob remake. It's not, yeah, like, there's right. a lot of... He's, 
even in those cases, there's something where he just sort of sabotages himself tonally. Um, yeah, it's 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 not quite like he pulls his punches. It's almost like he can't quite decide whether to pull it back and go a little more serious or just full steam ahead, full on gonzo. Like there's always those moments, especially in those three: um, Serpent and the Rainbow, Shocker, and the People Under the Stairs, where it could push into full on crazy territory, but then it pulls back at the yeah. last moment, and it kind of it it sabotages it a little bit. Obviously, not not so much with Serpent and the Rainbow because it's a lot more serious than Shocker and, and Serpent and the Rainbow actually has the opposite problem where everything up to uh, I don't think every, it gets crazy enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the final well, act is. Well, I no, I think it gets too crazy because I think I, I think him getting becoming zombified and buried and all that and the, the milieu of the, the location everything is really great and then it's just like oh and now there's a teleporting voodoo priest who's laughing and going ho 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 I have the keys to your brain blah 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 like yeah it's just it's like so again it, it's. It gets sabotaged itself. Like there's a, there's an elemental thing here. You read an article once, and it and it triggered something yep. in your in your brain, and your very intelligent brain, Wes Craven, that you saw as intriguing and as a good expression of horror. And then you sabotage yourself because you had to have like, I think at some point like the voodoo priest like shoots lasers out of his hands or something. Like he just shoots like kind magic. <laughs> there's there's like psychokinetics going on and all kinds of stuff. That's what I was saying. It it it's. Up until that third act, it's mostly just a moody, yeah, it's like a moody horror piece, yeah, almost, like almost more towards like a Val Luton type horror movie. But then you get that last, that you get to that finale, and then it, it goes gonzo, and it's like, you know, either start that way or continue the uh, the moody atmospheric thing the whole way through. It's it's he wanted to have his cake and eat it too, and. That those two flavors are good separately, but they don't quite taste as well as they should together. I guess maybe he's too smart for his own good. He, like he, he overthinks things. Um, scream, scream! Though I do want to uh, say a couple things about Scream. Number one, I think its other secret success is two of the char- or three of the character actors, but mostly for me, it's mostly the Matthew Lillard and David Arquette show. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew Lillard is great. so. And that, especially in that final scene, like he just feels so unhinged, and he feels so annoyed. Like he, he finds that the creepy, like he he brings that back around to the, just that stupid stonery kind of like just saying shitty things all the time. <laughs> like he he brings that around to like the creepy nugget in in the center of that kind of character, which is just like a lack of compassion. Like all that shit he's saying to Sydney while they're like after they've all been at. Questioned by the police and all that, like he, um, Billy has a Billy has motives. Obviously, he's off his rocker and, <laughs> and going too far, but he has a reason to be mad. Stu is just going along with it because he's a fucking sociopath. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much all it is, right there. He's 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 full blown nuts from the get go, but he's nuts in a way earlier in the film where he just seems like your crazy high school friend. Like yeah, he, and it's this, he, like he could be the killer, but he doesn't really stand out as much earlier in the film yeah. because he's so obvious that you just automatically assume that it's not going to be him. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the kind of the same thing with St- or with uh, with Billy, because you know, of course, why wouldn't it be the boyfriend? So because why wouldn't it be the boyfriend? We'd assume it isn't the boyfriend. So it's a red herring that actually turns out to be true. I, I think I don't. I'm actually really not a fan of Skeet Ulrich at all in this movie. I think he's. I think I think he overplays that even as far like I he never does. 
at no point does he feel like the boyfriend, and at every point no, does he feel like just a, a creep. It's yeah, like, ah, uh, I was watching The Exorcist. Let me think of you because <laughs> you suck because you, you won't you won't have sex with me. Like it's just he's a creep like the whole movie. So it's Patrick, just like Patrick. I would never think of breaking our no underwear rule. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Would you set up for a PG thirteen relationship? I just took my boob out. Okay, good. I'm about. Well, I was gonna. I was gonna jam a pen in your throat, but have there be no blood because oh. that would be the that'd be the red eye PG thirteen <laughs> relationship. Um. No. So, like, I'm not a fan of Skeet Ulrich. I think. I think uh, Neff Campbell's a good actress, but not necessarily in this movie. I think she's better in the sequels. Um. And then she's just sort of like, uh, like, just kind of terrorized and not in a. Yeah. Like. I, like. I think. Um. Like Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, it's like really amazing because she just yeah. has all she's given is just to react, and all she's really allowed to do is just be scared. But right. she's really good at it, and she's and like she gives her a character, and you really care about her, and she gives her like a wholesomeness and a shyness, and it's like there's a full person there. Whereas Nev Campbell's just sort of eh, like yeah, she like a little bit of that in that when she first gets the phone call, but it's it's mostly just her being sad, and also her. This is the other funny thing about this movie that I didn't notice until I watched it a couple times, which is like her she has the worst friends in the universe. She really like it, does. It's been one year since her mom was raped and murdered, and they're like they constantly bring it up. They constantly bring it up, and the, and like apropos of nothing, there's a scene where um apropos of nothing, there's a scene where Rose McGowan's like, I don't know, Sid, maybe your mom's a slut. Like, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe she's just like a slut who deserved it. Maybe I don't know. Anyway, you should come to the party tonight. Like, and just like, yeah. And note, like, if, if you were in a group of friends and one friend had a mother that was raped and murdered only a year ago, only a year ago. Every time I watch this movie, I forget that it's only been a year. I always assume it has to be more than that. Right. Um, only a year ago, and one of the other friends started was like, "Yeah, they got a man. They you cut him from the sternum to the and it's like." Like, you would just kick the shit out of that person. You would, like, get Sydney away. You'd be like, I'm really sorry. That's horrible. We're not speaking to him anymore. Like, like all of her friends are just horrible. <laughs> like, which I guess is like, oh, she's isolated and alone. But also, eh, Sydney, what happened? You seem like such a nice girl. Like, who are these assholes that you're all friends with? Randy's the least insensitive of the bunch, but even he goes on that tirade about the liver in the mailbox at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. What, is that a voice he's doing? Like, is that because this movie's full of reference? It even references like the town that dreaded sundown and weird obscure movies like that. Is that voice like did it true that you found a liver in the mailbox? Like, is that a character he's doing? I couldn't tell if that was supposed to be a reference or just a weird voice. I don't know. I don't know I'm, if he was I'm doing not like sure. A Jerry Lewis. James That's Curry. what I was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, it sounded like a bad impression of Jerry Lewis. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it was Jerry Lewis. I, I, Jamie Kennedy, by the way, was the third one, uh, third character actor in this that I think is amazing. David Arquette's oh. Dewey. David Arquette's <laughs> Dewey is maybe one of my favorite char- like supporting characters in any horror movie ever. Yeah. He is so good at just being such a doofus. Um, and <laughs> that, such a uh, sweet-natured doofus and not overplaying that too much. And being really endearing about it, and being really funny, and and this just is the all... point in the podcast where I insert the Dewey theme song. Just so. Oh I... yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So... Good. <laughs> so the uh, the Broken Era theme, right? <laughs> yeah, the one that Marco totally turned this into a meta podcast. Just start <laughs> yeah. commenting on it. 
It is a meta podcast. We talk directly to our listeners. Oh, yeah. It's not right. fiction. You can't be meta fiction if it's not fiction first. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, I love Dewey's shriek when Sydney first opens the door after her oh. attack and he turns and around. She, and mask. he's holding the mask. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I mean, part of it is, and he's just so, just immediately, just like, oh, Courtney Cox, you're so amazing. <laughs> or, or, or his freak out in the in the uh, police station when his yeah sister's tearing him down in front of his coworkers. Oh, it's so good. And yeah. that to me, like, the, one of the reasons the sequels work so well is number one, they still have that game of who done it, which is fun. And number two, they focus more on Dewey and Gale, and those, and Courtney Cox and David Arquette. For whatever else they are in any other movie, they are so great in these movies. They're so much fun. That's probably why they got married. Yeah, probably. Like, the- yeah, they even had a Diet Coke commercial uh, <laughs> that referenced Scream. <laughs> that's how. That's how. That's how essential these movies are to their marriage. Oh, I love them in this. Um, let's see. I'd just see. like to say, uh, "Fuck you, Internet!" One more time. In oh yeah, for ruining sequels. all the sequels. Yeah. Yeah, fuck you, oh, ain't it cool news? Fuck you. <laughs> like Kevin Williamson's original outline for Scream 3 had a returning stew as one of the killers. Matthew Lillard actually got paid for a movie that he never got to star in. Whoa. Yep. And the original plan for Scream 4 was to introduce all these new teen characters, which they did, but there were supposed to be more of them that survived, and Gail and... Sydney were supposed to die. Dewey would have been the only one left to carry over into a scream fop. Hmm. But once again, fuck you, internet. <laughs> yeah, Scream Four is another movie that's. It seems like Wes Craven not exactly knowing what he wants to right. do because it opens so silly. Yeah. Like Scream Four opens so <laughs> silly and just like, like, s- like time travel movies. Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's a yeah. It opens like a scary movie. Yeah, um, and then it gets really serious. Though it does it does sort of pay homage to the first movie by having another really fucked up scene where you get to see Julia Roberts' daughter just destroy herself, which is really cool to watch. Because mm-hmm. um, it's, it's just really another really weird fucked up scene. Parker, um, Parker Posey's pretty funny in 3. Uh, she's I don't, there's a lot about... Yeah, there's just a lot in Scream that's just really fun. That's yeah. just like... Introduce and just there's a lot of games at play. It it keeps things moving by like the game of oh the, there's a delay between the video feed and from the video feed to the the van, uh, and that is the exact time it takes to walk from the house to the van. So the second you see someone leaving the killer leaving the video feed, <laughs> like <laughs> to go outside, that means he's probably outside your van at this very moment. Like yeah. a lot of stuff like that's just like oh that's like a really good idea. Like that's just a really inventive. Uh, conceit for this one moment to, and that's how you have a good. That's how you have a good horror movie. Is you just come up with a lot of good ideas, and you just, and uh, and apart from, I mean, I do think this movie's a little too smug, and people reference horror movies a little too freely, and it's a little too winking and self-knowing, and and self-congratulating. Hello. Hello. I agree. Um, I do find it weird that it uh it obviously takes place in in the real world where all these movies exist, but then they throw in that Wes Carpenter bit. Oh, yeah. Well, no, Say Wes Craven. Save no, Dark no, they, well, it's, it's, that, was, that was her character not knowing the name because she's just oh, a blonde. Yeah. Well, I can go. Also, I, can what, go with, I can roll with that then. <laughs> has, has, has Rose McGowan ever been 
good in movies? Like, I've, I've always thought, oh, she's one of those people who's actually a good actress. And I think maybe I was just, like, in awe of her beauty and just assumed she was good at acting because she had brunette. Like, I don't know, but she just... She's really bad in this movie. She's really bad in uh, Phantoms, which is another 90s horror movie that she's in. Um, don't with, get me started on Doom Generation. With Liev Shriver. I've not seen Doom Generation. I Never. Maybe maybe one day we'll cover Greg Araki. Um. <laughs> I just... <laughs> I have to take uh, Rose McGowan's <laughs> on Lifetime now, I believe. Really? Is it Charmed for a while. She replaced Shannon Doherty on Charmed. Yes. Yes, I I'm sadly aware of that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> is she on Lifetime on that same show as Jennifer Love Hewitt, where they just, where it's like the fun prostitute show? <laughs> I don't think so. But she's she's got this weird plastic surgery face going on, which Courtney Cox also has in Scream Four, and it's horribly distracting. Yeah, mm. well, searching for Deborah Messing. It it's a shitty environment out there in Hollywood for actresses yep. who yeah. don't want to just play if someone's fucking mom like like you know like i i'm very sympathetic towards oh yeah weird plastic surgery face because it's just like oh you didn't you don't want to look like weird plastic surgery face you want to have a career like that really fucking sucks for you um <laughs> I, I, wanna, I don't know like i'm uh, this is, i mean this is a lot about screen that just works like it's not necessarily a fascinating film, but it's just it just works. For the it time does. it was. It really, though, really it, does. That's true. I wouldn't say like, you know, it was the Nirvana of horror movies or something, but it definitely revitalized the genre at a time when it was pretty stale. Like, you know, me and my best friend at the time, we were going to see just about every horror movie that came out and At that time it was mostly screen. You know, we were Yeah, it was, at that time it was mostly like Children of the Corn sequels, right? Yeah, pretty much. in the 90s. A lot of stuff was going DTV then. At that yeah. And, uh, yeah, most of the, all the big 80s franchises had, uh, you know, petered out by then. Well, you know what happened? It's horror got gentrified. The it horror did. section of the video mm. store it got gentrified because Science of the Lambs moved in, and suddenly no one could afford their rent. And <laughs> everything had to be this weird thriller aspect, and it couldn't just be a horror movie. Yeah, it had to be like the Bone Collector and... Yeah. This. Sort of serial killer. Movies. Along came a spider, and yeah, no. the hand that rocks the cradle. Like, <laughs> no, that was that was before. That was, was before. Like, yeah, that was like 1990. I okay. like hand that rocks the cradle. I'm. I like. I like uh, Silence of the Lambs. I'm just saying. Right. Um, horror got gentrified, and yeah. it was just sort of. And then it wasn't. Yeah. But then again, you could also say Scream is responsible for a lot of really shitty movies that are just like. Right. That's, that's what I was about to say. Horror yeah. goes through that cycle all the time. I mean, Saul yeah. did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand how I Know What You Did Last Summer came out after Scream. I mean, I just assumed that this was a script that Williamson had sitting in a drawer somewhere, like, before he even wrote Scream, because it's... Well, Kevin Williamson wrote Cursed. Well, and I know. I, know, I Know What You Did Last Summer, it's, a, it's based off a novel. Like, Kevin Williamson works... Ken Williamson produces television now. Yeah. Means that he's not an artist with a with a design burning stories, or at least he no longer is. Like he just works. And you know, and it's just like, well, who are we gonna get to write this? When we get Kevin Williamson, that guy who wrote Scream, he can demand a high price for it and it won't be that inspired, but he'll give it that Kevin Williamson touch where all the teens are fast talking and blah 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 blah. Like yeah. you know, like, just I don't, like a regression. that's just how that 
Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, it is, but, you know, inspiration doesn't necessarily always strike. For every Alfonso Caron who only makes movies when they know they have a really fucking good movie to make, there is, you know, there's Ke- Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Perfect pair who for one will, another. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Better or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we touched upon Serpent and the Rainbow. I just think um, it's, it, it, like... We pretty much all agree, you know, it's the the last act that is kind of a, a mess, and it's unfortunate because I think everything that comes before it is pretty good. Uh, I mean, it does have, like, imperfections, the use of voiceover. Um, I, the actual look of the film isn't anything to write home about. It just, it's, it's sort of, for that time period, it sort of seems like, uh, you know, something Mosquito Coast-esque or whatever, but... Uh, I just, I think it's interesting that it um, the the author of the book who actually had these experiences of going over to that country was not happy because Craven didn't really portray this culture in a positive light. Um, yeah. and that's what the book apparently does. It's you know talks about uh, you know these rituals and spiritual practices were done for more good than evil. You know, it wasn't about brainwashing it was about interconnectivity and you know i i still think the idea is really interesting you know a white man comes into that culture to exploit a substance Mm -hmm. that allows a person to essentially become a a zombie um you know so there's some sociological context going on in the film that i'm sure the book touches on more deeply that i'm actually more curious to read the book but you're right like that third act gets really horror tropey and messy rather than psychologically interesting. It's it's almost like, you know, it becomes a Clive Barker movie all of a sudden. Yeah. It's definitely very Lord of Illusions esque. Yeah. It, uh, yeah, I remember the first time I watched it, I just automatically assumed, because when he first shows up in Haiti, they don't portray, you know, all these people as evil. They're all just. Yeah normal people with beliefs and I thought okay here's what's going to happen he's going to go down there he's going to realize that you know this country is actually full of decent people and this is an interesting place to be and then the drug company is going to get on his back about bringing the stuff and they're going to be the villains of the film I just assumed that the first time I watched it years ago but then you have to have uh, Zakes McKay came in, come in as the uh, evil voodoo priest <laughs> Yeah, with, uh, that's really unfortunate. Again, we we're seeing like the potential there, you know, right. what we want from the movie rather than what we get. Well, and, and especially since I mean, I would imagine the book is mostly just an anthropology piece yeah. more than anything else, right? So it uh, it would I don't know. It just sounds to me like the whole white man raping a native culture would have fit the tone of what Craven was going for a lot more than what he actually did. Yeah. Instead of, you know, having to sympathize more with Bill Pullman, it would have been interesting to see a reversal of right. uh, sympathy. Patrick? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Revenge. Nah, it's actually, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while since uh, I've seen Serpent in the Rainbow. I can't, I can't speak too much of the details. Um, all I just, all, all I do remember is magic teleporting voodoo priest ruined that movie for me, and yeah, that but the things like fucking thing ever. 
being in, buried alive with a spider. God damn. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I know that's right. You're a very claustrophobic person. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the scariest thing ever is... Is it in... I guess... I guess it would be in Saw 2, where they fall into the pit of needles. Uh, I'm afraid of I'm afraid of needles, my friends. And heights. So if I fell from a height onto a needle... <laughs> and nature. And nature. So if I fell from a height onto a porcupine, that would really be <laughs> the scariest possible... That's why all those killer porcupine movies, I don't watch any of them. They're too scary. And also they don't exist. Which is weird, because Sci-Fi Channel exists. But that's all besides the point. Um... Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I would like to talk about Red Eye. Red Eye is really good, and it actually, it, what makes it good is again not as not nearly as good as Gravity, but it makes what makes it good is the same thing as what makes Gravity good, which is just it's very simple and it's yeah. effect and it's just and it has two very good actors at the center of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Rachel McAdams is a very good actress, uh, and so is Cillian Murphy, and Cillian Murphy. Um, and actually, the funny thing is, when I found Celine Murphy's Twitter, the one movie he shouted out was Red Eye. Uh, <laughs> he said, I still think Red Eye's kind of my favorite. And that was, that was like one of his eight only tweets he ever made. <laughs> Which is great. Props, man. Good. Yeah, good, good work, Celine Murphy. Um, yeah, he's really good in that. Um, I love the meat cute goes, that mm. goes kind of crazy. I love, um, just the simple tension of it. And I love, you know, it's just a, it's a nice, clever script. It, uh, it, it does the Wes Craven thing where it's just like the last 20 minutes are the villain getting his ass handed to him. Yeah. But, and this is probably the most, not necessarily, not certainly not the best thing about Red Eye, but probably the most interesting thing to talk about, which is the decision to reveal pretty t- close towards the end of the movie that Ray, Rachel McAdams is a rape right. survivor. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know why was necessary. So, it, I don't know if it was necessary, but it is interesting because yeah. on the one hand, like it's sort of like it's not that it doesn't it's not that it comes out of the blue exactly like it's it's, sort, implied, it's sort of yeah. he asks it and she doesn't answer. Um, I wouldn't even say it was implied. It's just sort of he says what did, who did what to you to make you so blah 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 and she doesn't really respond. But she also could be not responding because she's being fucking well, terrorized by a terrifying her person. Her dad shows so a lot of not... concern at the start on his phone call as well. So obviously something had happened to her. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, well that's, that's what I was saying. Like there's a lot that sort of adds up and it makes it interesting in retrospect. Which is like she decides to take a chance on the Cillian Murphy guy and she meets him for drinks and. She's like very reserved, and she's like, uh, and she kind of lets herself loosen up a little bit. Um, and it's and and also the reveal right before jamming her pen <laughs> into Silly Murphy's throat, which is a great thing because if it was in a rated R movie, it wouldn't have phased me nearly as much. But in a PG thirteen movie, it was not. That was the last thing I was expecting. What that? And then he'd have a throat with a little Frankenstein like doohickey sticking out of his neck for a good, like, five straight minutes. <laughs> um, and then just have a hole in his throat for the rest of the movie and not be able to talk. Like, that's so good. And just, that's sort of a, sort of an interesting way to frame it, I guess. Like, it's just sort of, <laughs> it's hard to, because on the one hand, it's also just like, well, this is kind of light entertainment, and rape is a really, like, surviving rape yeah. is a really complicated and serious thing, and to sort of just throw it in there to give the main character an extra little badass, like, yeah, fuck yeah. It kind of sucks, but on the other hand, it, it's not 
it, it does add stuff to the other scenes as well, and it sort of right. is mm-hmm. does well, he, add. He even seems a little sympathetic towards her. It uh, it almost looks like he kind of feels bad that he's put her in the situation, and then he gets stabbed in the neck and doesn't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's there's this like. Uh, like a 15 seconds there where he looks like he actually feels bad for putting her in the situation like that again. I don't know. He'd been sort of established as not being trustworthy at all. And also, the other thing that sort of plays into this, like, okay, you're going to say that this is the theme of your movie, which is men terrorizing women and women rising and striking back, and which includes rape culture and includes other stuff as well. Like, Mm. you're going to go ahead and say that's the theme of your movie. One thing you could say is, oh, there is that weird line where and it does come out of nowhere, and it stuck out really weirdly until this was revealed, which is Cillian Murphy being like, why don't you ditch that feminine, emotional like panic that you're experiencing and put on some good old-fashioned male logic? Like, it's, oh, yeah. He has that, it, it's weird because it's only that one line, but it frames it as man versus woman, and it's... I, like, it's, I, don't, I still don't know how I feel about it. Because yeah. on one hand, like... Fuck yeah, like Rachel McAdams kicking ass at the end. And, like, it's simplistic. It's not an accurate depiction of what it's like to survive an event like that. But it's it's still, like, you know, that's, it's, you know, at least she's doing it. You know, I don't know. But on the other hand, it's also just, like, uh, probably not the right movie, dude. Like, yeah, I don't think this can is... can help himself with... Yeah! I don't think he, but I don't think he, really he didn't can. write... But he didn't write Red Eye, did he? I wouldn't be surprised mm. if he touched it up a bit himself. I don't know, like, I get the feeling there are certain movies no, he, that are he, his. he didn't write it. I know that um, after New Nightmare, the, the only movie he actually wrote himself that he directed was My Soul to Take. <laughs> oh, here we go! <laughs> I, I, how you guys feel about My Soul to Take is how I feel about Shocker. I think Shocker is ridiculous and goofy and insane and all over the place, recycling Wes Craven's other movies. I just I find it endlessly amusing. Shocker, I, I know he was trying to put together a TV series in the mid '80s, and it didn't happen. And he basically cannibalized all of his ideas, threw them into Shocker, and the few that were left over got chucked into a t- another TV movie he did in 1990 called Night Visions. But yet, Shocker is definitely throw everything you can at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, what's interesting about that though is like uh, Horace Pinker's power basically becomes the exact same uh, sort of plot development that is throughout the the Hidden. The uh, yeah. the Ch- Jack Shoulder who directed Part 2 did this great science fiction horror movie called The Hidden. It was a science fiction action horror movie really. And you know, be able to leap from body to body like that was kind of interesting to see that incorporated into this movie. Because it, 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 you know, it leads to, of course, the uh, soul of a serial killer possessing a little girl. And, you know, crazy shit happens when they're running through the park, and that stuff is entertaining as hell. Like, the more bodies he jumps into and stuff, and... I, I don't know, it's it's a ridiculous mess. But I've I grew up watching that one kind of religiously, just because it was... So goofy. I like love Shocker. <laughs> like, it's more of a comedy to me at this point. It is. And it's it really is. fun. It's been a long time since I've seen Shocker. I remember not really thinking Mitch Pileggi was that funny, and I remember finding a lot of it kind of tedious. So maybe if I rewatch it again, I'll find it as funny. But My Soul to Take, that movie, to me, <laughs> that's jaw-dropping. It, 
That movie is so weird. I like it more and more every time I watch it. It's not a good movie, but it, I just find it infinitely interesting. Yeah. It's just so weird. <laughs> I, I'm not interesting in like, oh, look at the interesting ideas New Nightmare has. No, it's interesting, like, what was he thinking? So I was really excited, so I have the DVD, and, I, and it has a commentary with Wes Craven and the cast. Oh, I haven't like, listened to that. And I was like, oh, fuck yeah, I want to see Wes Craven justify this shit. <laughs> I want to see him. I want to see him with the cast, and I'm gonna. And I know they're all teenagers. They're not gonna be able to stop themselves from giggling when the fucking crazy shit starts happening, and they there's no explanation for it. And they all act like it's a normal horror movie. It is almost as surreal as watching my soul to take is watching is listening to the commentary and having all these people just like act like the opening isn't this weird bug fuck thing that makes no sense and is edited insanely, and that. That the fact that the movie just stops in the like stops for a minute to do a Marx Brothers routine, like <laughs> where their minds sync up and they're doing the mirror scene from Duck Soup. It's like, what is this? Oh, I saw that in theaters opening weekend. <laughs> oh, in good for you in three D. In three D. On my honeymoon. <laughs> Not gravity. Not gravity. No, but. <laughs> my soul to take. <laughs> I saw my soul to take right, um, right, before, right after I saw Let Me In, and I was like, "Man, horror movies are just not like <laughs> recycling is everything and remaking everything." Like, I just felt really jaded about horror at that point. I mean, I didn't. I was entertained by my soul to take, and I didn't think <laughs> Let Me In was bad remake or anything. But in terms of originality, nope, nothing there. The the best thing about my soul to take is the fact that it is apparently a loose adaptation of the thesis novel that Craven wrote to get his master's degree. What? How many people would you kill personally, Daniel, in order to get a PDF of that novel? I I'd put my number as high as five. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Five sounds yeah. about good. Yeah, yeah I it, think that's it, the body count. My soul to take. <laughs> it, it was called. Uh, Noah's Ark, Diary of a Madman. And this is about some kid who lived in a shack on, like, beside a cemetery that was beside the interstate or something. And he's friends with a dwarf that's a groundskeeper. And also friends with a feral kid from a rundown neighborhood. And I guess at the end of the novel, and of course there's a murder and whodunit thing, but I guess at the end of the novel you find out that there aren't three characters. They're all just different elements of the same person's psyche. <laughs> so he actually has oh, no... <laughs> he actually has no friends. He actually and, wrote the novel of uh, of uh, Charlie Kaufman's brother <laughs> in adaptation. Yeah, in, in uh, I guess, what, in the 60s? It sounds, like, sounds like identity, really. <laughs> yeah, identity too. But yeah, mm-hmm. and, and he, uh, I guess after giving up a long time ago on, on getting it published, he decided to cannibalize it and <laughs> turned it into my soul to take. Oh, and the man. best thing is in the in the biography that I read, he, he says that my soul to take is the best version of that story. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Okay, uh, listen, there's oh, a public, public service announcement, ladies and gentlemen. If you're going to be raising your children in a very strict uh, Christian <laughs> household... <laughs> Here's what's going to happen. They're going to be a little crazy. 
in ways that are unexpected that you will never see coming. They might also be occasionally brilliant. So it's a gamble. It's a gamble, folks. So just be careful. Maybe teach an open mind. Maybe teach them about some other religions. Maybe allow them to watch movies when they're other than Disney movies when they're little. Because that's <laughs> instead of making them wait until after they've gotten their master's degree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, Wes. I like you. Wish I loved you. I think, uh, <laughs> like some of his movies, obviously, you know, we didn't necessarily, we, we've talked about Nightmare on Elm Street a lot. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, everyone's seen it yeah. at this point. I would, or pretty much, I mean, that's a generalization, but I'd say pretty much everyone has seen it. And we have talked, really- to, talked to, I'm sorry, we have talked also talked about, like, just the new nightmare, like just yeah. our problems with it. Cause I know a lot of people that is one of their favorite Wes Craven movies and one of their favorite nightmare movies. I um, used to love it. I loved it when it first came out. I loved yeah. it when they all first hit DVD, but each time I watch it, it's just goes, you know, if I were to rank them, it drops further and further down. I don't think it'll sink any lower for me because, you know, a couple of the other ones are definitely a lot worse, but yeah, it's it's not one of my favorite Wes Craven films or one of my favorite Freddy Krueger movies. Speaking of favorites, hey, our Segway three. King. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Who's gonna go first? <laughs> Just, you know, you know what's great about great segues on podcasts? They're so ended by them. you acknowledge them and then kill the momentum that a segue is designed to <laughs> give. <laughs> we absolutely defeat the purpose of them. Um, all right, uh, Jim, why don't you go first? Oh, boy. Um, number one for me is, man, it's tough. I guess I'm going to go with the first Scream. Uh, and number two is Nightmare on Elm Street. Number three is Serpent in the Rainbow. Uh, Daniel? For me is Scream. Um, but uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street is really close behind it. So those are my top two. Three? Yeah. It's kind of harder for me to pick one because those are the two that I absolutely love. There's a there's a bunch more that I really like, but um, part of me wants to say Serpent in the Rainbow. Part of me wants to go with People Under the Stairs. <laughs> part of me wants to go ahead and throw Shocker up there, um, just because it's so fun. But uh, I also want to give a shout out to. Uh, his TV movie, Invitation to Hell. I, uh, I watched all of his television films, all four of them, and it was actually really well done. I really, really liked it. Yeah, maybe I'll check it but, out. But, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it wouldn't be my number three, but it, it, it'd be up there. But um, I, I'm just going to be a contrarian and go and say, head and say Shocker is my number three. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, number three is... Yeah, this one, number the first two are pretty much a foregone conclusion. Though I'm sure for some, Nightmare on Elm Street 1 would be better than Scream. But for me, it would be number one would be Scream, number two, Nightmare on Elm Street. And then I really do have to just say number three would be Red Eye. Like, as much as I love my soul to take batshit insanity, um, it's also just, it also is just, you know, that movie had a ton of post-production problems and it just feels really unfinished and rushed and weird and janky, and that's part of what makes it fascinating, but also makes it kind of hard to watch, and I think Red Eye is just ugh, like I I don't know if I'm more disgusted in Wes Craven or in myself that my number one that my number three Wes Craven movie is just like, you know what, it's a competent thriller <laughs> but <laughs> but, uh I don't know, he, I think I think Jim, Jim, you really did 
nail it when you said, like, I want to love him because I love him as a person. I already yeah. love him as a person. And I also just love the fact that he's had two career resurrections. Like, he did Hills of Eyes and, uh, you know, Last House and Left, and then he just sort of sunk into obscurity for a while and did shit, and then... And then, like, Nightmare on Elm Street was like, oh, my God, here he is. He's back. He's the king. And then the 80s, like, no, actually, no, he's kind of shit. And the 90s, like, oh, my goodness. Oh, this guy's really, scream. Oh, man, he's back on top of the world. And then now it's just like, well, he just has legacy. So I'm sure he he can make movies, like, every four years or so. Um, Maybe he'll he'll do another one and drag his ass back out of the grave. (laughs) Yeah. Go and watch Never Sleep Again, which I just did last night and had a... Oh, the doc- yes, the documentary on the Night Round Street, uh, series. So good. Yeah. I, I'm really... I'm excited to see the Crystal Lake Memories one, which is the same people. It's great. It's a lot longer, but it's great. It's about oh. seven hours. <laughs> That's a longer I mean, series. I mean, I mean, they cover everything. Even the TV series gets its due. Oh, nice. They touched upon Freddy's Nightmares, and I was, uh, I'd never, I might have seen it, but I don't remember the pilot, and it was directed by Toby Hooper, so I'm kind of curious to see that. I guess it's like the backstory of how Freddy became Freddy. I think it's on YouTube. I I haven't actually watched it either. I'm probably going to just end up throwing a link to that episode of Freddy's Nightmares on the blog, so... Visit the blog at directorsclubpodcast.com. Sweet segue. High five, Jim. Slap. (laughs) Okay, sweet. <laughs> I, know, uh, <laughs> I know Craven's working on a comic right now that he wants to do as a movie. And it's it's yet another thing about troubled teens and murder. That's the other, okay, that's the other thing I love about uh, that's the other thing I love about Wes Craven is that <laughs> he consistently works with teenagers throughout his career and I love to imagine that he is just like reenacting cuz his earliest film filmmaking days were just with his students. Like yeah. they just got a camera from the faculty or whatever from like the the university, and they're just like, oh, let's all make a movie together. And I like the idea that he's trying to recreate that all the time with just always working with young actors and stuff. Um, but uh, I'd I like to think that I'm, I'm not going to sit here and be hopeful that he pulls another uh, Nightmare on Elm Street or Scream out of his ass. But uh, I, I would not be upset if I got another My Soul to take, especially yeah. especially since the the title of the comic, I don't know if it's started running yet or not, is called Coming of Rage. So that's oh, just... Oh, man. <laughs> wow. So oh. Just, yeah. That sounds incredible. I'm going to do a double feature of uh, Through the Never and Coming of Rage. <laughs> that sounds like a, that sounds, that sounds like a real treat. So anyway, you can visit us at I've been updating the blog. Um, even to my own detriment, I do want to tell the story real quick. I was at, so I got a new job, which is exciting. I work in Whole Foods now. Um, and Whole Foods has two computer or three computers in the break room, which are linked to the internet. So on your break, you can just go on Facebook or whatever. Um, nice. Yeah, so I was doing, so I went on, our, you know, our blog is Tumblr-based, and I went on Tumblr because I was going to write an entry about the music in the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, NES game because that was my first experience with anything Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, and I think the music in that game is really great, so I was just doing a blog entry on that. But someone was over my shoulder there looking at me, and I was on Tumblr, and the like the last post that was in my feed was just a bunch of memes, and they're like, huh, memes, huh? And I'm like, and I, was, I hate memes. Like, they're just, you know, like just the picture and then the impact font, just dumb text. I hate those <laughs> so much. I think it's just the laziest form of comedy. 
and I was like, no, not memes. I'm actually, uh, uh, and I'm like, and I realized what I was going to tell him was, I'm actually writing a blog post for my podcast's website. It's about the <laughs> NES music for Nightmare on Elm Street game. Like, and I was like, oh, no, I couldn't do that because I'd have to kill myself. So then I was just like, um, no, I'm, I'm doing a thing. It's for the, it's for a thing. I'm doing, it's a, it's a blog thing. <laughs> And like, and I was, and the guy was like, oh, "Okay, yeah. asshole, like, what? <laughs> like, whatever, dude." Yeah. So, uh, to my own, to my own social detriment, I am keeping that blog going, especially during October, because it's Halloween season. I get so excited. Um, so you can find that at directorsclubpodcast.com. Keep those emails coming. Um, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Oh yeah, and visit me at Instant Gym, which on is- Twitter. On Twitter and, and Letterboxd as well. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Patrick Rapole, Um And my uh, viewing journal, which I have been updating, is uh, Martha Marcy Nash and Young. Um, and I guess that's it for me. Uh, Daniel. Daniel, what do you like to plug? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter as well. It's just at Daniel W. Baldwin. Uh, obviously, I'm on Facebook. Uh, Cinematalica. We're we're still running our John Carpenter series all month long. If you happen to live near the Mall of America, um, every Tuesday this month they're actually doing a uh, Tim and Company are actually doing screenings of Carpenter movies. Nice. I wish I, I wish I could join them. They did Escape from L.A. this past this past week. Oh, our favorite. <laughs> I mean, well, it's 2013. It takes place in 2013, so why oh, not? Okay. <laughs> I think they're doing. To watch it. Yeah, I think the thing and they live and Prince of Darkness are the final three for the month. Oh, uh, the best or not the best ones because they live, but Prince of Darkness so good. Yeah. But uh, but if you if you live nearby, just you know get your ass down to the Mall of America on on Tuesdays and you can have yourself a wonderful Carpenter time. And I will be writing some sort of editorial about Craven's career to go along with this podcast when it arrives. Um, not sure how long it'll be, or not sure when it'll get published this coming week, but keep an eye out for it. <laughs> yeah, I'll link to it on the blog, right. and I'll link to you. <laughs> oh, thank you. This is so sweet. <laughs> yeah, um, Patrick, we're doing another Mario Bava episode. It's pretty cool. That's true. That's true. Going back, Italian horror. Mario Bava got a big, big filmography. I got a couple. I got a couple irons in the fire, and hopefully, one of them turns out to be an iron. I don't know how that metaphor is supposed to go. Yeah. That's all right. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. I'm still a valuable person, even though I <laughs> screwed up the end of this podcast. No, well, I mean, it's appropriate because Wes Craven screwed up the ending of the first Nightmare on Elm Street. There you go. I was paying tribute to the well, master himself. I, yeah. Then send us an email, and uh, we'll consider it. Yeah. We also will be playing, yeah. uh, for the next episode, uh, an intro that was sent to us. Which is really kind of sweet and cool. Um, we're just gonna yeah, sound an intro for us. Yeah, so we're gonna be uh, playing that for the Mario Bava episode that um, you'll enjoy very much. Uh, so we're open to sending any you know if you want to send us anything you want, please do. Uh, anyway, we'll see you in a couple weeks for the Mario Bava episode. Talk to you then. <laughs>
It's the place you got the time. Listen to this, you'll bust the ride. Fred Krueger, the myth of Fred Krueger, the man. It doesn't matter because I'm still rapping about him, understand? So sit back, check, I'm doing a bust and rhyme. Grab a hole in your face, it's Krueger time. It's time for Fred. See, I'm a popular guy. If you don't know yet, you're gonna find out why. Man, Where their minds sync up and they're doing the mirror scene from Duck Soup. It's like, what is this? Oh, I saw that in theaters opening weekend. <laughs> oh, good for you. In 3D? In 3D. In- on my honeymoon. Oh. <laughs> Not gravity. Not gravity, no. But, <laughs> my soul to take. <laughs> <laughs>